Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. You know, you don't know that this, but there's a fair amount of like audio production and um, like skills that go into crafting what you just heard. Okay, so I want to introduce you to the guy that taught me how to do a lot of that shit that you just heard. Not the Pharrell music, but the uh, the ID, the sound effects, and all that. His name is David Whitesock. And uh, he and I have known each other since probably around 2000, yeah, 2002, 2003, when we started working together. So, uh, Dave, first of all, uh, welcome to All Marine Radio. Thanks for doing this. Of course, anytime. Good to see you. Um, yeah, that is, uh, that is uh, those effects are in a program called Adobe Edition. And uh, You have really stepped up your game. <laughs> <laughs> I could do stuff in Adobe Edition that I never even knew existed. Um, and I've even like graduated to Adobe Premiere, which is video. And you've seen wow. some of the fruit. Exactly. You've seen some of the fruits of my labor. And that's even going to go because I'm going to incorporate live video of me and then the shot fading. And yeah, it's now, now, now if only we could uh, up your PowerPoint skills. What do you mean? What's wrong with my PowerPoint skills? We need, we need some graphic design help. Oh, that. Okay. Well, you know what? I don't worry about that. I mean, come on. There, there is beauty and simplicity, eh? Yes, but, there is. But, there can be beauty and beauty. Oh, uh, you know what? That's true. You know? And, I mean, we all know that, I mean, we've seen Hunter Biden's artwork. And <laughs> speaking of beauty. Speaking of beauty, so I mean, every, there's beauty all around us, right? So hey, there is beauty everywhere. Now, but really, seriously, uh, your slides are simple, and they get the message across. Oh, um, really? But we simple. Can, we, we can we can refine them a little. Okay, I'm all about that. I'm all about yeah. that. So I want to have you on to talk about what you do, but before we do that. Uh, this is All Marine Radio, and we have to, like, sniff around to see if we should believe anything that you say, right? So we have to learn about a little bit about you. So first of all, born and raised where? Grand Forks, North Dakota. Born on Grand Forks Air Force Base. Sorry, Marines. Hua? Yeah. The uh, So you're an Air Force kid, and yes. you grow up in a small town called, by the name of, Thompson, North Dakota, home of... The Thompson Tommies, who happened to be the Little League World Series champs. What were they champions of? What's that big sign I remember? Uh, they've won the state, uh, the National American Legion Championships a number of times. They were state champs for high school baseball many, many years. I uh, had one of the winningest high school baseball coaches of all time, uh, Coach Ryan Brannell. There you have it. There's big signs when you go through Thompson that tell you about that. And there's a cop that hangs out in Thompson that gives is legendary for the tickets that they give people. Yes? That used to be the case. Oh, it's not anymore? I don't think so. It's been a while. I don't, really? That guy's long gone. <laughs> Things Thompson, North Dakota is famous for. So um, 
you're born and raised, and you and I crossed paths doing radio. Uh, how do you get into the radio business? Uh, I graduate high school thinking I'm going to go to North Dakota State University to be an architect. That lasted about a year and a half. Um, my life had already started to get pretty topsy-turvy and uh, couldn't stay in college and couldn't find a job. And uh, a high school friend of mine was uh, a DJ, an announcer at the radio station that we both ended up at. And he said, this was right in 1997, at the time of the flood right. in Grand Forks. And he says, uh, we need voices, we need bodies. And uh, would you like to come uh, work in radio? And my first and only question was, does it come with a paycheck? And uh, he said, of course. And if this guy could do it, uh, I'm talking about Paul, uh, who, who you may remember. If, if Paul could do it, I could do it. And You're so right. that was it. Wow. Wow. So, um, and Dave is essentially, when I get there, a couple years, a few, maybe five years later, Dave is, he builds websites, right? He makes commercials. That's called production. Um, he can do country music. He can do pop. He can do rock. He can do talk radio, which really made him truly the jack of all trades. He could drive the vehicle, right? He could do anything. I mean, he could play do anything. Play, sports. Yeah, sports yeah. In, in hockey, basketball. We didn't really do baseball. But everything that we did, he could do. So he became, you know, but again, the website stuff was, was very important. So he's kind of jack of all trades. And for me, because I did talk radio, Dave was this, you know, guy who could fill in for anybody. He didn't really have a show, but then you got, what would we do? The Dave Miller? It was the Dave Miller Hour or something like that? Well, no. Uh, well, with another person, we called it Till Further Notice. <laughs> because because there was somebody that was at the station who decided to just up and leave and we had to fill the space so uh jared and i took over and we were like we're we gonna do this forever i don't know let's just call it till further notice we'll see what happens that's great great yeah. great stuff and yeah, we uh were very creative yeah <laughs> there was a number of of programs that were like that there was a uh, two fat guys did, used to do a show when on one of my trips to Iraq called, and they called it a ton of fun at one. <laughs> and let me tell you, this shit was hilarious, right? They were they're funny, funny guys, and they would talk. They would like they would do fat guy humor, right? Yeah. And it was seriously, it was funny. It was funny. Radio radio brings you all walks of life. <laughs> There's, there's and let me tell you, hours out of the day that have to be filled. You can't just leave dead air. <laughs> no, somebody's got to do it, exactly. and they've got to know how to push the buttons. And, and really, beyond that, it's like, can they push the buttons? Yes. Could they get it on the air? Yes. Well, what about the content? Who gives a shit? Okay, that's the, they meet the minimum requirements. Will they, will they show up? More than likely, they will. More than con likely, con content is an evolving process. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, Dave and I meet. Um, and then Dave goes through a period in his life, uh, where his life gets difficult. Uh, talk about that. So you're, you still, you haven't graduated from college. You're doing everything at the radio station and your life gets difficult. I'm, I've gone to Iraq once, you know, I, 
and this is so this is about 2006 and I'm going there again and actually I, I go and so talk about talk about your life how it unfold well I started working in radio in 97 and by that time I had already uh, had my first DUI and so I became you know I don't really like to use the the phrase a functional uh, alcoholic, but I, I, I was. Why don't, why don't you like to use that phrase? Because it doesn't just uh, apply to folks that are struggling with alcohol or drug addiction, right? There are functional people struggling with all kinds of stuff all the time. Um, but it was just one other part of my life that I had to overcome while still maintaining life and work and all that other stuff that everybody else had to. Okay. So um, it's marginalizing uh, for a lot of reasons. But underlying my alcohol use was a lot of anxiety, severe social anxiety. So showing up on radio every day, um, not necessarily easy for me but easier because it was basically just sitting in a room by yourself and, and talking for three hours. Right. Right. And, um, building a personality around that and then, uh, struggling with depression for, for many, many years. And alcohol was my medicine. It's the way I, I, I coped. Um, how young were you when you started with alcohol? Cause, uh, North Dakota is a drinking like, like rural America, rural America drinks, kids, not a lot to do. They go out into, shelter belts and they have bonfires and they and they drink they learn how to drink they learn how to do drugs so yeah how old were I, you i was 17 that's so older I, older than most right hell yeah i mean i reject i explicitly rejected doing that um wow. it was probably mostly because i didn't know how to hang with that group of kids right that group scared me um i wasn't necessarily invited in so uh, sneaking out of the house, I, I was a timid, shy, anxious kid that wasn't, wasn't my crowd. Um, but as the story goes, you know, I did go out one night. I did have that first beer, and that changed the trajectory of my social life. I, I could now speak to my fellow classmates. I could speak to the girls, you know, um, which is really important when you're 16, 17, 18 right. years old. Right. Uh, so you skip ahead and you're in college and now you got a job. Um, everything is just lubricated at that point. But um, these things build upon each other. And so I'd pick up a second DUI. And now I'm getting familiar with the criminal justice system. So I know how to deal with a situation like that. Um, I know how to fast talk my way through those issues. Um, a third DUI. The third one was a bit more disastrous. It was on New Year's Eve night. Uh, I put my head through a windshield driving my car, uh, driving head into head on into a parked car in Fargo. And um, that was a wake up moment, you know, for me at the radio station. Uh, I got sat down by the general manager and uh, he knew what was going on. He wanted to try to solve that problem. But it was a Band-Aid, like a lot of these uh, fixes. It was temporary. And 
for a while, for a couple of years, I found my purpose in radio. I was getting really good at the web design stuff and uh, figuring out who I was and, and what my place was, you know, as a small celebrity, you know, big fish, small pond. And just engaging in that world and, and finding some purpose. But what I couldn't ever get rid of was the need for something uh, to, to help me feel whole or complete. And that was the alcohol that was doing it for me. So that goes on how long? How does so take us to how this thing kind of comes to a head for you in your life? 2004. Um, it's really bad. Uh, I lost a relationship and I never drank on the job, I was, but I was always constantly consuming outside of the job. Um, driving home one night in the company vehicle, you know, the call letters on the side of the, uh, the vehicle and you can't miss that, but I made it home. Uh, I just didn't make it out of the car and I lived on, uh, you know, third, third street, which is, uh, you know, blocks from the, the police station. So cop cars were passing me till four or five in the morning. Finally, one of them stopped to check on me. And that resulted in me losing my radio job, which um, in that moment, you know, two things are colliding. Both of my identities, the one identity is that of my radio personality, my work, and the other identity of is me as being this person with uh, severe addiction. And they're both slamming into each other and now having to do something about it. So fourth DUI, uh, fourth driving under suspension because I didn't have a driver's license for close to five years. I never got that resolved. So even while working professionally, driving company vehicles, I never had a valid driver's license. So just think of all these things that are stacked up along the way. It's mounting pressure, mounting stress. That all hits ahead. Um, and I spent the next, I'd say, year kind of swimming, not knowing what I was going to do, but that resulted in starting a web design company. Um, I got into podcasting before anybody knew what podcasting was. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, it, you're, it doing, even, you're doing what? They're called yeah. podcasts. Podcasts. What the hell is that? Yeah. What is it? Um, it actually ended up, uh, we had New York Times reporters come to my parents' house in Thompson because <laughs> I was living in my parents' basement. But we were, you know, as a radio producer, we could produce these shows. So we had a movie show. Uh, we had a sit-down show, weekly show, with the mayor of Grand Forks. They were paying us. The city of Grand Forks was paying us to put the mayor on a podcast. That's happening everywhere today. It wasn't happening in 2005, but we were doing it. Um, so way ahead of the curve. Uh, we had a, a, a an outdoors podcast, so fishing and hunting and that sort of shit. Um, and then I did my show again, right? So we had these four shows. Well, it captured the attention of the New York Times, and there we were on the front page of the technology section of the Sunday New York Times, millions of readers seeing this. Uh, two months later, I'm in New York City at a conference and um, about to be handed a check uh, for a lot of money to fund what we were building. I was in a blackout and I tore the check up in the lobby of a hotel and said, we don't need this. We were just in the New York times. 
a few days after that, get back to Grand Forks and I'm standing in a room with a couple of lawyers and my former business partners and they said, sign these three documents and take the middle copy and leave. And um, that was like a moment of a whole lot of things swirling around. Um, it would result in a third attempt at my life. Uh, I've attempted suicide three times. And then a few weeks after that, um, being kicked out of my parents' house. So, so let's talk about the suicide attempts. First one is when, how old? I'm 23. All right. How, how many DUIs have you had? Two. Two. And does anybody find out about it? No. Okay. Second one was? Two years after that. Okay. What, per, um, what precipitated it? A loss of a relationship and um, a handful of other relationships that were, were questioning my life. So, and, and I think for everybody out, out there that's listening, probably for many of you, right, you could take Dave's events, right, fill in the blanks, right? Not this, but that. Not this, but that, which led me to the same spot, which led me to the same outcome. So by the time your parents kick you out, I mean, you, when you've worn out your parents, that is, you know, 100,000 stab wounds to the heart and them saying, look, we love you, right? We just can't do this anymore. You are killing us, right, yeah. with this shit. So by the time you get there, um, so then what? Then what happens? So when, when I'm told to leave, that's a Wednesday morning, um, because I know the internet and because I didn't have a job and I needed a job, uh, I, this is 2005, I find an opening for a radio station, a sports director position in a small town in South Central South Dakota, winner South Dakota. <laughs> so of all places, a loser like me is going to end up in winner South Dakota. Never heard of it. Um, <laughs> Never been there, <laughs> uh, but I sent an email. I sent my resume. Within hours, I get a message back. Can you come down Friday for an interview? So 11-hour drive from Grand Forks. And you had a good resume. Yeah, right? I had a good resume. Right, right. To go to, to go to Winter, South Dakota, they don't normally get a resume like that. No. Um, Did anybody ask if you were in the witness protection program? Like, why are you coming to Winter? I could I could I could throw a winner joke here, but I, there are still people that I like in in winter, so I won't completely. But nobody the bus. nobody asked that. No hell no. What the only you? question I got asked was how why, soon why, how why soon could you be here? Oh, why the change? Yeah, and it was on my resume. I said, look, I left radio. I started a web design company. I started podcasting. It didn't go well. I'm getting back into the workforce. Slick. Very slick. Slick. But you've and, been, but you well practiced by that time, right? You know, oh, yeah, you'd you'd swum around every obstacle, every disaster. You found an industrious guy, smart guy, finds a way around it. I had even at one point for my third DUI um, showed up to the state's attorney's office and walked in, <laughs> like I knew what I was doing. And I sat down. And I said, uh, "Can I ask you a few questions?" And he says, "Sure." I said, I'd like to ask you about a case. Uh, 
David Whitesock. And he goes, sure. What, what do you want to know? I was like, well, what's your plans? What, what do you want to do? And he goes, who are you? Are you his lawyer? And I go, no, I'm him. <laughs> and he goes, are you representing yourself? Are, are you a lawyer? Yourself? I said, no, I, I want to resolve this. And he said, and he looks at his desk and there's this stack of files and he goes, what do you want to do? And he pulls my file off the top and he goes, what do you want to do? I said, I'll pay a $250 fine and I'll go sit in jail for the weekend. And he goes, sure, I'll recommend that. That's what it was. I could have, I could have done 30 days in jail and paid a thousand dollars. Wow. So, wow. Did you kick yourself after that and said, hundred bucks and a night in jail? I could have got that for less than I'd paid. I probably would, if I would have just showed up to the arraignment, I probably would have just got kicked. But, you know, who knows? <laughs> uh, but, hey, are, but you cleared it off his desk, right? I cleared it off his desk, and I cleared, I cleared the worry out of my mind because I now knew what I was going to do, right? Right, 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 right. Um, so, you know, in all of that, um, I end up in, in winter at this radio station um, where there's basically, you know, two radio stations – couple of fast food joints and about 18 bars. Um, and I'm waking up at five 30 in the morning to be on the air. I'm off by two. What am I going to do for the rest of my time? So I head to the bar, I go golf. I, you know, I get right back into this mode of consumption that fills a giant void in my life. And I start to get really sick. Um, alcohol is really starting to take a big toll on me physically and um, about three months in, I get my fifth DUI. So I'm out late at night, Sunday night. Um, I stop at the gas station to pick up a movie because it's two in the morning. I got to work at five. I'll just watch The Aviator and and uh, why not? And, and go to the office, you know, and, and go to work. Um, that didn't happen. A cop saw me, uh, saw me cross the center line, and uh, I got picked up for my fifth DUI. And that event sort of changed the trajectory of of my life. Okay, so what happens now? You're you're standing at some point. Okay, so um, so far, somehow or other, you've threaded the needle and really avoided anybody looking at you and looking at your your criminal past, if you will, right? And saying, "Hey, bud, you've got a problem, right? And we're, we need to fix it." before you kill somebody because that's yeah. that, the great fear of, of when you get in a weapon like a motor vehicle while you're, you're while you're intoxicated so what happens this time so this time my public defender my lawyer um sat me down and said look you are now facing a felony why, why be- can you explain that to us why were you facing a felony in South Dakota, um, three DUIs within seven years was a felony. Oh. North Dakota wasn't that way. I forget what it was in North Dakota. And so... Um, North, Dakota, North Dakota is a peculiar state. Um, yeah. Um, the, one of the ways... The are peculiar. <laughs> one of the ways North Dakota specifically is like you get a speeding ticket in Minnesota... And they will carve out of your wallet money. Yeah. North Dakota, you will pay like, you know, seven bucks. 
for going like 80 miles out over the speed limit. And you're like, really? Like, yeah. yeah. See you later. Have a good day. Come back. Don't be afraid to stay. Like, why wouldn't I stay when speeding tickets are only 15 bucks? But, I mean, it it, it it is surprising in some aspects of it. And this is one of them. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you're asking the fundamental question, the what-if question, you know, or why. Um, and it's, you know, one, one way to describe it is it's fair to say that a lot of the people in my life only saw a few of the trees. Very few saw the entire forest for what it was. And this time with this judge and in this court and of course my public defender saying, we can see this all. We, we get to see this entire picture now. And from 1994 until today, we now have this, this picture of 12 years of, of you just running roughshod um, and nobody getting in the way. You've never been to a serious addiction, alcohol, drug treatment. Um, you've done outpatient treatment. You've done therapy. And a lot of that's been forced on you. But it's never been any, any serious attempt. Uh, nobody's ever stepped in the way. And so, um, you know, the, the, the one big thing, you know, my lawyer being my lawyer was saying, look, my job is to just keep you out of prison. My job isn't to keep you out of jail, but it is to keep you out of prison because those are two different things. Um, he says, you're going to do jail time, but I'm going to I'm going to keep it under a year. You're going to be in this jail here in winter and we'll get you a few things that are going to help you turn your life around. That's that was his job. That changed when we actually showed up to court for my sentencing. Um, the judge. And my lawyer even said this to me. He goes, Judge Kathleen Trandall doesn't screw around. Um, we don't know if she's going to accept this plea agreement. So just know that we could walk in this morning and she'll decide to do whatever she wants to do. And moderately, so, okay. moderately uncomfortable for a master manipulator like you that is part of the reason that you're where you're at, right? Yeah, because so let's just. No, nobody's time. ever. Had you ever been? You've never been faced with that up to that point, yeah? I had done weekends in jail, right? I had never been forced with a severe loss of my liberty. Some fines, a weekend in jail, outpatient treatment, which you could do over the course of nine weeks. That was easy. Um, this was, you know, a year in jail. This was going to be. Who got? Who knows what's going to happen? Right. Um, but just to back up a minute, you know, so I'm arrested for fifth UI in June. I am immediately put onto something called um, twice daily breathalyzers. The 24/7 sobriety program is what it was called. So in order, I couldn't pay a bail. In all these other incidences, I could. I could wake up in the jail, pull out my wallet in North Dakota and ask, how much does it cost for me to get out? And they'd say 200 bucks. And I'd have $200 in my wallet at all times. I was prepared for these moments. Oh, were you like, South- a, like a rap artist rolling around heavy with all that cash? Like what the, what the hell? You were making it rain in, stri- in strip clubs and in Grand Forks? 
No, I just knew that I couldn't. In the strip to, club when it was open in Grand Forks? I just, no. I just knew that that um, these wow. events were going to probably occur, and I would keep bail money in my wallet. I just would. Um, South Dakota wasn't like that. Uh, in order for me to get out of jail, in order for me to stay out of jail, I'd have to show up at the jail at 7 o'clock in the morning and at 7 o'clock at night, and that was my ticket to staying out. And so twice daily breathalyzers, um, just for everybody's knowledge, that almost killed me because I was severely intoxicated and was going through withdrawals and, and detoxing, um, for, for the next week after that, just about 10 days. Um, I went to the emergency room three times during that, that period of time, um, you think there's you've, you've likely heard horror stories of how some doctors treat people uh, with drug and alcohol addiction, and I experienced that in this moment. Um, the doc thought I was just showing up, you know, for for drugs. Um, didn't think I was really sick, um, and he just said, "Look, uh, you tell me you have depression. Okay, if that's the case, here's this drug. Take it and get out of here." Um, the drug was Wellbutrin. Um, it gave me instant night terrors, uh, which almost killed me. And so that, while that's going on, I still hadn't made the decision that I'm done, right? I hadn't decided that I am going to quit drinking. Um, I hadn't told anybody that this had happened. My family thought my life was back on track again because I had a job and they'd seen where I worked and all of that. And they came down to South Dakota for the 4th of July brought the boat, we went on the lake, we saw the fireworks at Mount Rushmore, you know, hooray America, um, hooray David, your life is back on track. Um, but they had no idea that I had gotten a reprieve from the twice daily breathalyzers for their visit so I could keep manipulating the system. And I had my last drink on July 3rd of 2005 went back on the 24-7 program on the 5th of July. Three weeks later, uh, I wake up in the fetal position um, in my kitchen, not knowing how I got there, but that was sort of my moment of surrender. And then realized, okay, I'll call the lawyer. I called my lawyer and I said, David, I will do whatever is required of me to do um, to, get, to get out of this. And um, so he set that up and we went into court on September 22nd for sentencing. And sure enough, uh, we thought we were going to just be swinging at fastballs um, and the judge threw a giant curveball and uh, she rejected the plea agreement. And uh, she looked at me and she looked at the court and she looked at my file and she asked the question that you asked. She said, David, I don't, I don't understand. How did you get here? How did somebody like you, who looks like you, who has resources like you have, who has family here, who is here, who have supported you over this time, um, who has had a career in, in broadcasting, who has six years of college, but no degree. How does somebody like you end up here in this courtroom? a courtroom that is smashed between two Native American reservations where there's a ton of crime and a lot of poverty. And she's like, how did you get here? What did we do wrong? That was the question she asked. 
What did we do wrong? How did we miss this? And, you know, if you can imagine that this is a, a, a movie, if you will. Oh, um, it is. Court- I'm, I'm, in the, I'm listening. I'm like, I'm fascinated because some of this I've never heard. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, the courtroom is this big, majestic 1920s style courtroom, high ceilings, big windows. That something face, out of a movie, right? Something out of a movie, these huge windows and they face north. And when you look out the windows, you see this sort of classic South Dakota landscape, you know, rolling grass fields. There's pheasants flying and it's a hot September, very windy. And the judge looks out to the court and then she looks out out the windows and she's silent for about five minutes. There's just nothing. And then she turns to me and she says, okay, here's what we're going to do. My instinct tells me that like, that's not good. Yeah. So was mine. My stomach dropped and uh, my lawyer sort of gave me a little nudge and he just leaned over and he said, um, I don't think this is going to be good. <laughs> and uh, she says, you know, I have, I have, I've, she goes, I have one duty. My duty is to protect the citizens of South Dakota. And that duty tells me I have to lock you up for as long as I possibly can. She says, but I am also a mom. And as a, a mother, I want you and I want people to be well. I care about you. I care about everybody here. And she goes, I don't know how to handle both of those duties. She goes, one is a very personal human duty, but the other is my sworn oath as a public servant. And she says, so the only way that I can rightfully uphold both of those is to do the following. And she says, I'm going to I'm going to sentence you to two years in prison, but it's going to be up to you to never see that prison. So you're going to do 180 days in my jail. Um, You are going to pay a big fine. While you're in my jail, you're also going to go to inpatient treatment at the Human Services Center in Yankton, South Dakota. You're going to do 30 days there. And when and and while you're doing that, you're going to you're going to figure out what you want to do for the next year of your life. She goes, I'm going to put you on probation, supervised for five years. She goes, you're going to go to AA for every day for five years. And she says, and the last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make you do twice daily breathalyzers every day for five years. And she says, if I can, if I can, if you, if you'll figure out what you want to do for the next year in your life while you're in my jail, I'll let you come back to this courtroom and tell me what your plan is. And I will let you out early. She goes, I'm going to give you all of the guardrails to not screw up and to give you a good chance. She goes, it's going to be up to you to tell me something that's not bullshit, and I will let you out. Did she, did she use the word bullshit? Yes. And she saved your life. Yes. Are you still in touch with her? We are best friends. I want to meet her. I want her to come on. You should talk to her. She I, is no, I would love to because, I mean, I mean, God bless her, right? I mean, finally getting you the help you need in a compassionate way and putting you on a path to do what you do today. 
and and because the system previously anything you could do somebody could do to expedite your file off their desk is a reason that you got where you were to include that little ballsy event like i want to know what you're going to do with david white sock like who are you well, I'm David right. Whitesock. Like, get the fuck out of here, man. I'm throwing the book at your ass. I'm going to double whatever I was going to do for this little fucking stunt. Right? But what you did was help him take that file off his desk and give it to a clerk to process it, and it went away. And there's a human life and maybe somebody else's life that's attached to that file. You know? Wow. Yeah, and what almost And what's her name? Her, her name is Kathleen Trandall. Is she a good Irish girl? <laughs> She's a good South Dakota uh, woman. Um, Got it. You know, wow. yes. She, I mean, she what she saw was uh, an individual who didn't know how to get out of the hole. Right. Right. And she just, she's like, I'm going to jump in. I can't tell you what to do, but I'll give you the, I'll give you the, you know, enough to figure out how to build that ladder and, and get out yourself. Um, and so, you know, where the story picks up and I'll speed it along a little bit is, um, you know, I'm in her jail. I go to treatment uh, for 30 days while I'm at treatment. I'm asking around, I'm like, I know nothing about South Dakota. Um, what do I do when I leave? Where do I go? And my counselor says, well, uh, you got to tell the judge something. Why don't Why don't you call my friend Tom in Sioux Falls? He's now managing a sober home, and that's where you'll go. That's where you'll stay. And and Tom's a good guy. He'll connect you to everybody in town. That will be a great first stop. I said, great. Uh, what's Tom's phone number? So he gives me Tom's phone number, and I call Tom, and Tom says. You know, um, anybody who's a friend of so-and-so is a friend of mine. I would love to help you out, but uh, the house is full. And he says, the only way you're getting in is if somebody dies, if uh, a guy relapse and, uh, relapses and we got to kick him out, the guy ends up back in jail, or he just disappears. So any one of those four scenarios happens, or he says, somebody could do well enough and decide to move out. He goes, but I'm not counting on the last one. I mean, he was a pragmatist too, um, cynical bastard. Uh, but he's like, any one of those four things happens, you're in. I said, so I said, what do you want me to do? He goes, call me every day at this time. Get a check-in. I said, you, I said well, you really want me to call you every day to see whether or not somebody has failed so that I can get to the next step? And he goes, that's how it works, sadly. So for the next two weeks, I called Tom every single day. And um, sure enough, I called one morning. I was already back in jail. There was a room available. He says, it's yours. So on January, we went back to court, told the judge about it. Um, she heard from Tom and others. And she said, okay, move to Sioux Falls. Um, so my parents drove down, picked me up at the jail. Uh, we went to McDonald's. I got a egg McMuffin and <laughs> breakfast. And then we drove to Sioux Falls. We uh, um, first stop was the jail so I could do a breathalyzer. Second stop was the house to get me moved in. They paid six months of my rent. They then took me to Shopco and we bought a bike. We went to Walmart. I got clothes. And then we went to the Verizon dealer and got me a phone. So 
I had communication, transportation, clothing, and shelter. And um, I'd be able to survive a month in the house because the food was already paid for. So the, last, the rest of it was up to me. But they dropped me off, got everything I needed. They hopped in the car and they drove home. And they said, good luck. And um, so for the next six months, I was kind of, I got a part-time job at the radio station. Okay, so uh, hold on, hold on. Um, we skipped over the fact of the, where you, when you were in jail. So yeah. you, you 180 days, six months. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, and then 30 days of the six months, you had to go to Yankton to do the in-treatment thing? Correct. Okay. So how long total were you in jail? And then she said she'd let you out early if you gate brought this plan and blah, blah, blah. So what was And so quickly, um, what was that like and how long did you ultimately remain in jail? I was in jail 153 days um, of the 180. And I was a trustee, so I was a, I was, uh, a cook. Uh, so three, day, three, three times a day, I woke up four in the morning, made breakfast for 40 guys and gals, um, cleaned it up, did the dishes, took an hour break, made lunch. Repeat for dinner, do it again the next day. Now, the jail was under construction, so there were five of us trustees, and there were 10 federal prisoners, two of whom were murderers, uh, one of whom was a rapist, uh, who were the construction team, and they were living on one half of the basement, and us other trustees were on the other half, and we had the whole basement to ourselves, and so I had a cot in the corner, I had a stack of books, um, I had letters from people like you, uh, and, and, and about two other people who were still communicating with me at the time. And it was just, you know, doing this daily servant work while being incarcerated. Um, now, let me, let me just, I'll, I'll add, I didn't know anything about Dave's other life. No, there's some people who we worked with that knew, but I was not one of them. And so I'm in Fallujah, and I get this, and I, you know, I, I knew that he left the station, and I knew that he was, uh, he was starting his own thing, and you know, he's on the, co he's in the New York Times, and it's like, wow, and uh, this whole podcast thing, the mayor's on it, blah 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 blah, but I don't know anything about his quote unquote other life, and I'm in Fallujah in 2006, and I get a, a uh, an envelope with his name on it um, from South Dakota and it's written in pencil and I open it up and he tells me the story and you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm sitting there stunned because of, you know, w w I didn't under like the judge, right? I don't, I don't understand how this, how this can happen. And, um, yeah. And so, um, so I mean, I wrote him. I wrote him back. Right, what any you know halfway decent person would do is write him back, and so that that's that's how I find out about this. Yeah, you know, halfway decent person. Um, again, you're you're an exception to the rule because the rule is um, most. Well, well, we both person. know that, but I don't like to. You know how mod yeah. you know how modest I am. I don't like to really say that about myself. Right, but I'm I'm saying it because most people didn't write back. Right, most people didn't write back. I can't even fathom that. 
I can't even fathom that somebody would be in your situation and you would take you would take that letter, right? Handwritten letter in pencil, right? Um, and the courage it takes to write that. And the stuff that was in the letter was was you know was honest and courageous in its own right. I I I said this. David and I were talking before we came on the air today. I had somebody in one of my seminars the other night say, "I'm sober three days," and I'll, and I'm sitting there and I thought that takes fucking balls to say that because most people would say I've, I've been sober 743 days, and it's a it's a statement of triumph. I'm sober three days is a statement of a failure. And the courage it takes to do that in a public setting is 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 what courage is. And I, I find it honestly hard to believe that somebody would turn their back on that. Right? And and I, yeah. I part of me understands it if the if you had inflicted pain on them personally. But I'm sure that you wrote to people that you knew professionally that it wasn't personal for them. They just they knew you and whatnot. So it's Hard for me to fathom when somebody sticks their hand out looking for help or even just, uh, you know, to talk that you would not help. Yeah, it, it it's one of those things where. Well, hey, well, so what what was that like? You write to people and I'm sure there were some people who you, who you expected that would write you back. Was it I mean, what did that feel like? So you're in fucking jail, although you're a trustee, you're in jail and. And then, I mean, people turn their back on you. Uh, it's lonely. You know, I have but, a thing I tell my kids: life's not for pussies, right? Yeah. Hello. Yeah, it, it, it's incredibly lonely. It's it's, um, but at the same time, uh, I'll just speak for myself. For me, it wasn't that I expected people to write back, um, but I certainly understood why somebody wouldn't. And I had to very quickly figure out how to process that to say, if I'm going to get through this and, and that's the scenario, I'm not going to keep pushing that boulder up that hill. I'm, I've got another hill to climb. And so um, that was just simply a lesson that I had to learn in real time that I think a lot of, some people get taught that <laughs> um, other people figure it out through life circumstances. This was that circumstance. Um, there are just some boulders you got to stop pushing and, and um, you, you move on. And that's what I chose to do. Got it. Got it. All right. So your 153 days goes by and then, Talk to us about um, going back to school. So, so, what, so you back, you go back to court, and you you see Judge Kathleen. Yeah. What's your last name? Trandall. Triangle. Trandall. Trandall. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So you you go back in front of her, and what do you say to her? What's the plan? Well, uh, what I told her was, I'm going to move to Sioux Falls. I'm going to live in a sober home. Uh, I'll be able to live there for at minimum six months. Um, be going to AA uh, every other day uh, or every day, and um, that I will immediately look for work while I'm there, and that's where I'm going to start. But but you don't same, have law school's not in your head, finishing your degree is not in your head, none of that's in your head. Okay. No. 
so the, the what what changed things was uh, I go for a job opening at the meatpacking plant, and I'm sitting there with another guy to my left. His name was Mike, big guy, like six four, huge. And you know he and I are talking, and I says, "You've ever done this before?" He goes, "Oh yeah, I, I've, I've worked here for years." I said, "Why are you?" interviewing for this job because I just came out of prison. And I said, no shit. <laughs> he goes, what about you? I said, I've never done this. Just got out of jail. And he goes, okay. Out comes the manager. And he looks at Mike and he looks at me and he goes, Mike, great to see you again. You got out. And Mike goes, I did. And he goes, who are you? And I tell him who I am. And he goes, ever done this before? I said, no. He goes, I hate to do this to you, but I'm going to hire Mike. <laughs> and uh, I said, okay, great whatever. Um, so I left the meatpacking plant and wandered around for two days just going, what am I going to do? And so I wrote a letter to the registrar of New York, of North Dakota. That didn't get responded to, so I called them. And I wanted to find out, could I go back to school? And the registrar of North Dakota said, hell no. Uh, your GPA is a 1.9. <laughs> so at the University of North Dakota, they said, your GPA is a 1.9. You got to have a two to get in. Um, can you take a class? and get it up. But I said, no, I'm down here in South Dakota. And I said, well, she was about to hang up. And I said, wait a minute, can I tell you a story? And so I told her what my story was and why I want to go back to North Dakota. And, and I hear a just silence. And she says, hold on. She goes away, comes back a few minutes later, and her voice is kind of shaky. And she says, David, um, I've talked to the registrar. Um, both of us haven't talked to our sons in months. We'll give you a shot. What do you need? I said, I need a letter from you <laughs> saying that you'll take me. And she said, fine, it's in the mail today. So I get that letter and I get a copy of it. I go to the Walgreens across the street uh, where I lived and I get a copy and I send it to the judge. And I say, Judge, my plan is to go back to school in North Dakota. I'm going to live at home. Um, what do you think? <laughs> and she wrote back, and she's basically four sentences. Great idea. But you're not going back to North Dakota. If you'd like to go back to school, pick a fine institution in the state of South Dakota. I fully support that. Let me know how I can help. <laughs> now, for, for, for your North Dakota, South Dakota audience, um, you know, I grew up watching North Dakota sports. I grew up going to the Potato Bowl and seeing UND versus USD, you know, and North Dakota playing South Dakota. Now, for everybody who doesn't know anything about this, there are no professional athletics in either North or South Dakota other than D-League basketball at one time. It might not even be D-League. It might be like G-League basketball or, you know, something. Um, very, very low-level minor league sports. So the major sports are the University of North Dakota, the University of – and North Dakota State University. Their hockey and football teams have incredible histories, as does South Dakota's football team. Uh, was in that mix of very, very high-end Division two programs back in the day. Now they're football champion FCS schools, and they win national championships and things like that. So – David, I mean, they were the social events of the year in Grand Forks were the hockey games. 
right? They were the, I, that was the cotillion that you had to be at. And I grew up as a kid in the old Ralph Engelstead arena going every weekend, you know, uh, putting my head on the glass, watching Tony Herkus and Bob Joyce and, you know, Jim Archibald and all of these guys from way back in the day. And there was just no way, there was no way that I was going to go to South Dakota State or the University of South Dakota. I, it just, it was unfathomable. I couldn't, couldn't think of it. To be a traitor like that. A traitor. Um, but somebody said to me, look, if, if you want to go back to school, um, University of South Dakota has a high quality, nationally recognized journalism program. Uh, it's funded by the, the, uh, the owner, founder of USA Today, um, Al Newharth. Go there. You'll get a leg up. You've got a radio career. You'll get the degree, and that'll be a way to get back in the business. Um, and I thought, yes, brilliant. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm going to do. And um, but the judge, you know, she kind of threw a wrench in that, and she's like, "Okay, you got to go to South Dakota," and that's what I did. Um, I, I go to Vermilion, South Dakota, and I think I'm going to go back into radio. Uh, I had to take an elective to fill out my schedule my first year, and the elective that I took was constitutional law. For no other reason than I just I liked history. I thought eh, this would be fun. Um, turns out the professor was a public defender and a lawyer, and uh, one of the requirements was you had to give a mock Supreme Court argument. And so she learned a little bit about all of us, and she picked cases, and she's like, David, I want you to argue um, for the uh, First Amendment flag-burning case, and I want you to give the argument for the First Amendment rationale for being able to burn a flag. So what she learned about me was that I grew up on an airbase thinking that would be a very hard argument for me. Right. <laughs> and she did that for everybody in the class. And um, so I made the argument, not that I agreed with it or disagreed with it at the time. I don't think I had a, an opinion one way or the other. Okay. But she saw that I was pretty good at that. And so two days later, um, I'm sitting in the library and this classmate of mine, Chelsea, comes by and says, uh, uh, Sandy McEwen wants you to show up to mock trial practice. And I said, I'm not. I'm not showing up. And she goes, why not? I said, well, I'm, I, I write for the school newspaper. I'm trying to get my life back on track. Um, I can only take on so much. I was very aware of things. And Chelsea said, nobody says no to Sandy. <laughs> and I said, well, I, you know, Sandy seems great and all. I enjoy her class, but um, she doesn't rule my life. And Chelsea goes, oh, oh, David. <laughs> Poor mistake. I said, just go back tell the professor. Um, I said, no. And she says, okay. <laughs> 30 minutes later, Chelsea is back in the library. She's like, David, get your ass to the classroom. Sandy wants you there. I said, what, what is she going to do? Kick me out? And she goes, just, just come, please just appease her. And I said, okay. So I show up and, um, on the spot, there was a guy who was quitting and she's like, they need, we needed somebody to fill in. So she said, David, just take that piece of paper with those questions and do a cross examination of the witness. So I did it. And, um, she's like, great, you're hired. You're going to the competition. So the next weekend we go on this competition and she's 32, 33, I'm 32, 33. I don't mix with the 19 year olds. 
and we're on our way back home after the competition and we're at Culver's having butter burgers and it's just her and I sitting down and she looks which at me are delicious goes, which are delicious by the way they're fantastic and she says who are you why are you here where'd you come from and, and you know, very sincere honest questions and I said what I and I told her my story and she just looked at me she goes what are you doing going back into radio what a waste what an absolute waste of an opportunity. She was, you don't see what it is that you have to do? And I said, no. She was, you have to be a lawyer. You have to go to law school. You have to go argue and advocate for the people who, like you, have woken up in a blackout on the floor of a holding cell, who have been treated poorly by the system, who end up in jails and prisons sorely because they have a mental health condition. And they don't know how to get out of it. She goes, you go, need to go be that advocate. And I looked at her and I said, um, I'm not very smart, Sandy. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not a very bright person. And oh, by the way, I'm a convicted felon. And she goes, felony aside, um, how many lawyers do you know? <laughs> and uh, so what would happen is um, she convinced me that I should go to law school. And so... Um, for the next two summers, she would drive to the courtroom four or five hours away to get to a 930 uh, hearing to modify my sentence so that at the end of three years of getting my undergraduate degree uh, in history, I could walk across the stage, shake the hand of the president, get my degree and go to law school. And um, so I graduated. I applied to a bunch of law schools, got into none of them. Uh, but the University of South Dakota had a what they call a summer screener program. They saved 10 seats. And uh, so for poor unfortunates like myself who want to get to law school, uh, they put us in a room with 20 or 30 others, um, and they make us fight it out over six weeks. It's like the Hunger Games for, for <laughs> law school. And when I, I'm serious about the Hunger Games. I mean, yeah, laptops are missing. Right? It's just ugly. And so I did that. Um, I was number five out of 10. I got into law school. And after three years of law school, uh, graduate, um, I passed the bar exam. And then there was one last hurdle to becoming a lawyer. I had done an internship with the public defender's office. That was the direction I was going. Um, but in order to be a lawyer, you have to prove your good moral character. And so when oh, you apply, so there's a moral clause. So, and who evaluates that? Does the, the state bar evaluate the state bar. that? Yeah. So there's yeah. actually two evaluation points. One is you apply um, with the national uh, board uh, for taking the law, uh, the law school exam or the, the bar exam. And that is a process where they flag your character and fitness and they run through a bunch of checks, your background and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then they check that record and they give it back to the state and the state does its character and fitness determination. And then they send you back a deficiency report. And, and then, <laughs> so, then they say, so you, you know, can't. you know where this is going, right? Absolutely. I knew it going in. Right. 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 We knew this was going to happen because uh, Sandy, who's an incredibly brilliant you know, woman, uh, and human being, she's like, look, we'll just prepare for this. We'll keep a record. You're going to build 
a record like any lawyer would do in any good case. Right. You're going to build a record. And so by going back to court with her showing up uh, and presenting evidence of zeros on my breathalyzers, volunteer work, doing a bunch of other stuff, uh, we were building that case. And so we had to do a four hour hearing in front of the board of bar examiners. Um, we did that. Uh, it was ugly at, at times. A four hour hearing. Yes. Wow. And the, six and the, witnesses. And the, the, su- judge, the subject the, and the subject is you and your character. Well, stated another way, why should somebody who's a convicted felon with five DUIs, five driving under suspensions, a lawsuit from the state of North Dakota, um, who is sober just over eight years, uh, but over 12 years of, of destruction and financial wreckage, um, why should we let you be a lawyer? Why should the public entrust you to be a lawyer? That's the question. It's all about trust. There's a lawyer joke in there, but I'm not going to go there, be, right? <laughs> there's a lawyer There's a there's low hanging big fat piece of fruit right there, but I'm not I'm not going I'm not going to go there. Um so so at the end of 4 hours, you know, the judge Trandall, by the way, Kathleen Trandall, she um she testified on my behalf. I love her. Um Is she married? <laughs> she is. Damn it. Uh, I know. And um, we we had a lot of strategy going in, just to, as an, an aside. Um, the, the head of the Board of Bar Examiners had just announced um, before the hearing that she was going to be uh, the next sitting judge um, in one of the circuits. And probably one of the best trial lawyers in the state. So very smart. But now she was going to become a judge. And so what Kathleen decided to do from one uh, barrister to the other uh, and from one judge to a new judge was to use this as a teaching opportunity. And uh, so, so there was, there was that going on in the background. And anyway, so six months later, the board of bar examiner um, sends back a letter that says we will conditionally admit you to become a lawyer in the state of South Dakota. Uh, Next stop uh, is a review by the state Supreme court. So that recommendation goes to the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court uh, does its own review of the record. It took them six months, and then one day I get a letter in the mail, single page, that says, congratulations, Mr. Whitesock, um, you can be sworn in uh, as a lawyer in the state of South Dakota, conditionally, uh, a conditional admission for two years. So uh, in August of 2013, I got to go back to that same courtroom, same judge, so no longer a defendant, um, but uh, I got to swear the oath from Judge Kathleen Trandall to be a lawyer in the state of South Dakota. Wow. Did you cry? Um, not not that day, not in that moment, um, but there have been multiple times since, and especially when I've had the opportunity to be with Judge Trandall in spaces Within the bar, um, we've had some some pretty pretty good moments. So, let's talk about your career as a lawyer. Um, I so so give me the Reader's Digest because I want to talk about addiction and, yeah. and and how you got there. So 
So now you're a lawyer. Um, what happens and how do you get pointed in the direction of the work that you do now? Well, while I was going to school, uh, I saw a flyer for an organization um, being started up in Sioux Falls to address addiction. And it was a town hall process. And I, so I, I had taken part in that process, and this was while I was still going um, to school. By the time I wanted to be, you know, get a job as a lawyer, I couldn't because I was going through this long process of character and fitness. So getting a law job was hard. So I reached out to uh, Kevin Kirby, the guy who was running this this town hall process, who I'd gotten to know. Kevin had also started the sober home that I had moved into, and I had met him on my second day in Sioux Falls. And so I had sent him an email and said, Kevin. I have no prospects for jobs. I can't become a law. You know, I can't actually practice law for at least another year. Um, you know everybody. Could you point me in a good direction? He never responded. Uh, but his his co-founder of the of an organization called Face It Together did respond, and and Charlie wrote back and said, um, "Wonderful timing. I'd love to talk to you." And I knew Charlie from the town hall process. And so this was October of 2012, and I joined Face It Together to go work on building um, new processes and care delivery methods for um, people with addiction, but to do it using peers, uh, recovery coaches, uh, folks like myself who had overcome the disease, but actually build up a system. And where my law part comes into that is that organization had already been operating in Sioux Falls, and so what we wanted to do was create a, fun, a franchising model out of that. So my first job was to uh, to develop a, a franchising uh, package so that we could take to any other community in the country that wanted it and we could start up a nonprofit franchise um, of this model. Okay, so you do that and then with the expectation that you'll do this kind of thing and then at some point you will uh, be out of your probationary status, you'll become a full enfranchised lawyer with all rights there and two pertaining. What happened? Um, I stayed with Face It Together and I, I continued just doing the work of trying to change the status quo of a severely broken system of care. And so I was at Face Together for eight years um, doing a lot of different things. Um, some of it was technology because I, I knew technology and and so, you know, how do we actually capture data in a space where data is never captured? Uh, the other question was, um, I told you a big, long story of my wellness, but how do we actually capture that in data? How do we measure recovery from addiction? I can tell you, you even said, I'm three days sober. I told you the last day that I consumed alcohol or drugs. But those days on a calendar are just days on a calendar. You heard a story of job, purpose. I got married in all of this. Um, relationships, you know, blossomed and returned. There's so much more than just ceasing the use of an alcohol or drug. It's okay, so, so, let's, so, let's, so let's talk about this. So um, wh what is an addiction? And how does well, an addiction, does everybody 
with a drinking problem? Do they have an addiction problem? So no. what ex- explain addiction to me? Addiction is the point when amongst all other circumstances, you continue to use a substance or continue a behavior despite the negative consequences that occur to you. So you lose the ability in many cases to rationalize the right and wrong of an action. So like with alcohol, for instance, we'll just use that. Um, I will keep consuming alcohol to a point where two things are going on. One, I physically need it because if I stop using it, um, there will be physical, biological harm. And then two, it has restructured my, my, my cognitive um, abilities to understand proper consequences. So I get a DUI. Most people, when that happens, you understand that that is a serious situation. You change your behavior. That's most people. When addiction has set in, that's not how you process that information. You're, 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 you're fundamentally neurologically incapable of fully processing that situation in a rational way where you will change your behavior to not do it again. So you're incapable of rational action? Yes. And that's addiction? When full-blown addiction has set in, yes, that's what happens. How does one differentiate between if somebody's addicted or they're just stupid? That's a good question. I, I, you know, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that question. Well, give me your but, unqualified. Give me your unqualified answer. You do this a lot. I mean, yeah. And, and I, I will. And I'll give you my version. One thing that I am acutely aware of is what a serious mental illness is. Okay, um, and I've spoken to enough people over the course of five and a half years. Um, to and, and I would tell you this: it's normally not very difficult to to ascertain that there's something deeper going on here just by the meter of the conversation, just by the pace of the subject changes, just by the way the the, the conversation doubles back on itself. Right. Um, there are easy to see um, yellow flags, red flags that go up. Okay. Um, talk to me about Yellow flags and red flags, um, your unqualified opinion of how do you, with all this time and experience in this business, um, how do you tell the difference whether somebody's a full-blown addict or if they're just struggling to find the right program, the right message? Because you, you've seen post-traumatic winning. What you hear on a regular basis is I've been in therapy for decades. I've made more progress in this program in weeks. I've told you things that I've never told a therapist, and I cannot believe what's happening in my life. And I would tell you that those are people who don't have a a serious mental illness that have been floundering in this system. So I would say they're not addicts. They just haven't found the right message. Somebody hasn't articulated this to them well enough for them to see the path that they can walk to go to a better place. Yeah. Um, so make that make sense to me relative to addiction. Yeah, <clears throat> that's a great setup. So I try to separate. Thank you. The- I have I have above average 
broadcasting skills, which you helped me refine. So, so, but thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was brilliant. Um, I separate the physical and biological dependence from the psychological. So somebody comes to me and says um, they need help. The first thing I ask is, okay, how much are you consuming? So whatever the substance is, first we want to know what the substance is because alcohol does different things to you than cocaine, than heroin or uh, opioids or whatever it might be. Okay. And so all, all of those have their own chemical issues or challenges. Um, but let's just say alcohol because that's the one that affects most people. Um, so the first thing I want to know is how much are you consuming? And what happens when you try to stop using? What happens when you don't have alcohol coming into your body? And what the reason why I'm asking that is because if, you, if, if you're consuming so much alcohol and you just stop, your body will go into withdrawals and withdrawals are potentially fatal. So that's the first thing. Go. So that's the first thing I'm concerned about. The second thing then becomes what you were asking earlier, and that is the psychological part of it. You know, why are we consuming that much alcohol? Why why do I need to spend my days um, drinking or using drugs? What is it doing for me? Is it an emotional reason? Can I not handle certain stress? Have I been stressed and the alcohol was an initial elixir to the stress, but then all of a sudden, because it is an addictive substance, it's just taken hold over time. And how long has that happened over time? So those are the, that's kind of like the the thinking process is to go from uh, the physical dependence part of it, physical, biological, um, Applications that it might have on you as a, as a, as a uh, in your body, and then the the second part is the why. Why do we use it? Those are the two big components. Okay, for, so okay, for, so let me take uh, you back. Addiction. So let me take you back to the original question. So what differentiates an addict from somebody who's just struggling to find the right program to be in, the right message, the right to have it make sense, and then I can my cognitive process kicks in and then that that begins the behavior modification that an addict can't do so what's where is that line where is that line in in how do i tell the difference yeah it's the, it's the physical dependence part of it so if somebody is is on a substance and they if if they if they can't get off it without harming themselves you know that is clearly the issue that has to be dealt with first Forget about whether or not they can do anything for themselves, like not tell a lie or manipulating systems or whatever it is, um, or even start the change process. The first is, can we get you out of or away from that toxic substance? Can we, can we, can we clean your body of that thing first? Now, like the judge, in my case, she said, if I could just keep you sober long enough, you'll figure it out. You know, and put those pieces uh, in place. That's that's really that you know for anybody. 
the brain you talk you know, I think before we were we got on this uh, this conversation you know asked the question you know or, or made the comment that you don't really necessarily care about you know how the brain works or neuroplasticity but it's actually really important in this point because with alcohol in particular if you've been using alcohol for a long period of time at regular high frequencies and, and rates, it typically takes 120 days for your brain to restabilize after you've no longer been using alcohol. And it doesn't matter the quantity, it just matters that you're using because, and, and well, you don't get there without using a lot. Right? That's right, and the alcohol right. impacting you physiologically. So the fact at that point that you use any sustains that physiological dependency. Correct. Don't, hey, don't think that I don't know because I mean I'm I don't want to say that I know a little bit, but I know a little bit. Um, yeah. But that little bit sustains that that substantive right, uh, right. modification to your brain. That's right. And once you get past the 120 day mark, it's not like you're out of the woods right. because, you know, cravings are a real thing. They last for a long time. Uh, just in my case, I was experiencing cravings for up to five years. Um, wow. they're, 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 they're deeply ingrained. You know, we talk about muscle memory. Well, there's, there's neurological memory too. Um, you pass by a bar, a restaurant, a house, a street, a smell, a song, something triggers, you know, a particular beer or a wine or a place you would drink at. You know, those, all of that stuff is real. Well, so, and, so it's the same response that from PTSD. Absolutely. Right. That, that the brain triggers a video, the brain triggers a sensation. So it's the same triggering process. Absolutely. There's no, it's, it's all the same wiring. Got it. And even for some people um, who have good memories, right? The same thing happens if you have great memories or good memories right. um, and good experiences. You could be walking along one day and smell a flower and it instantly takes you to something you were doing with the person that you love and some vacation somewhere. Right. It's all the same. And, and so that the question now becomes, this is where you get into like cognitive behavioral therapies. Um, so when you have that thought or you get, you, you recognize that event, you know, what's your behavior, what's your emotions and what's your action? What do you do? And, and understanding those three key pieces. So craving comes, what thought does it give me? What thoughts are running through my head? Okay. What do I do with those thoughts? How do I act upon those thoughts? And we can train ourselves to absorb and set aside how to engage those craving sensations. Same sort of teaching goes on with uh, smoking cessation. CBT is a huge, um, is hugely applied around smoking. And, and, and uh, we can apply it also with anxiety. You know, so, you know, what gets me anxious? What are my thoughts when I get anxious? Okay, then what do I do upon those thoughts? And the thought could be a good thought or a bad thought, but we want to train ourselves to get to the good thoughts. All right. Next question. So 
can some people handle addiction on their own? Yeah, do you mean handle getting uh, out of addiction on their own? Yes. Yes, and most do. About okay, 75%. Okay, now, okay, now I want to, before we go down this road, um, you sent me a YouTube video of a guy, and he says, just about everything that you've ever learned about addiction I I don't know if he said it like this, is wrong. What's that guy's name? Uh, Nir Ayal, or um, the other one is uh, Johan Hari. Johan Hari. Johan Hari. Johan Hari. And fascinating, absolutely, absolutely fascinating guy. And um, he kind of, um, he reminds me of me in, in a way, in that he doesn't come at this as a as a PhD therapist guy. Right, he comes at this as a pedestrian, right? Um, if you will, meeting um, meeting people that say, "Yeah, I'm an addict" or whatnot, and then he begins to get involved in this in this industry, and then, but he, he's he's seeing it at the at the at, at at the at the eyeball level, okay? Not from a laboratory, not from a perch afar, but he's seeing this, and and he and he begins to pull strings and go down rabbit holes and 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 assemble, you know this 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 body of knowledge that 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 he assembles. Can you? So I want to talk about that. Can you can you introduce Johan Hari to this discussion? At, when I ask, and and you just responded, because I think that respond that that surprises people. Can people get? move through this, you know, without some form of help and your response, I'm sure shocks some people when you say most people do. So talk about your response and then talk about Johan Hari's work and spell his yeah. name for it. Yell, spell his name for us. Yeah. So Johan Hari is J O H A N N and Hari is H A R I. He's, he's British, um, former journalist. Uh, and like you said, he, he grew up with addiction and severe mental illness in his family. So the book that set him apart was a book called Chasing the Scream. And in Chasing the Scream, what he outlines is, one, his family history, and then, two, um, he traces the, the drug war in the United States and in other countries around the world. And... Um, you know, that starts in the 20s and 30s. Um, and then in that, the story that he tells, because he's a journalist, is the story of Billie Holiday and how the, the U.S. federal government was going after uh, her in particular. Um, one, she's black. Uh, two, she's a heroin user. Um, three, she lived in Harlem. You know, just a, a lot of things. Um, and how just her life was destroyed by the layers of criminality that was placed upon her drug use and that it was this never-ending cycle of of abuse in her life and the only thing that that she could find sadly besides the music but because the music wasn't being accepted widely it felt like she wasn't being accepted the only thing that she could find that could fill that hole was drugs and alcohol. And it just killed her. 
and she lived a very short life and and she died from it um and he he basically says you know what's ultimately missing for for most people is and his tagline is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety the opposite of addiction is connection now we have to unpack that okay hold on Am I going to heaven because I'm hearing violin music? I don't think my <laughs> I don't think my daughter's playing her cello because she hasn't done that in about 14 years. Is that coming from your house? It is. Yeah, that's my wife. She's a professional cellist and a professor, and so she's on the other side of the house uh, practicing. practicing. Got it. Got it. Okay, I, I didn't know if something was about about bad was about to happen to me, and I was hearing this like, who knew this actually happened? It was a thing. So, yeah. um, all right, all right, all right, all right. Continue. So we have to unpack the connection piece just a little bit because um, for a lot of people, they think that's just social connection, but it's more than just social connection. It's connection to people. It's connection to um, things of purpose. It's connection to our values, you know, asking the question, who am I? What am I? Why do I wake up every day? What, what brings me meaning? And do I have a connection to that? When those, when when the connections between you and people, connections between you and purpose, the question between you and joy, when those things are cut, we fill it with a whole bunch of other stuff to try to bring us pleasure, unnatural pleasure. So drugs, alcohol, and other stuff. But, you know, just think about your day today, Mike. You know, you woke up. Um, maybe you went out for a walk or a run or you walked the dog. Um, that brings you joy, right? That being out for 30 minutes, walking the dog, I know for me, that is a, that is a moment of joy. I look forward to that every day. I get to do that every day. A lot of people don't have Do you have that. to pick up dog shit in, Nor- in New York? I know it's not evolved as evolved as California, but yes. Oh, of course we do. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, we don't. Uh, we don't. We're not heathens out here. Right, just checking. Just That's checking. New York City. I'm in northern New York. We're we're full 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 humans. Yeah, it's like it's 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 New York, like many like Minnesota, right? Tale of two civilizations. Right. The sinkhole of New York City, the sinkhole of Minneapolis, and then everybody else in the state is a you know, semi-rural, small-town state, New York, very much like that. So, Yeah, interesting. Exactly. But I, I don't mean to interrupt your point. So these moments of joy. Yeah, and, and you have them, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, a lot. And, and for, for a lot of people, imagine a, a, a world where you're not experiencing that, where there there's constant stress, there's consistent chaos where there's um, verbal abuse, physical abuse, um, never feeling like you're wanted or part of anything that's greater than yourself or even of yourself. All of those things are a disconnection, which Johan Hari talks about. Now, he takes that one step further in his next book called Lost Connections, (laughs) where he goes in deeper <clears throat> around the idea of depression and what is really depression. 
And depression is really the state of anti-connection from things. And so I could really hear the cello now. Well, yeah, I can, which I'm now beginning to enjoy. What, but, I mean, it, it, what he says is so contrary to what, right? Um, yeah. And this is why he reminds me of me. Post-traumatic winning is so contrary to the, our, our modern-day industrial approach to what gets people through struggle, which is to medicate them and bring them to individual therapy and group therapy. And if you if you look at the statistics associated with it, then you'll you muted your microphone. What's wrong with you? Yeah, we. I love the cello. So. The argument you're making is so um, radically different than what most people understand. Um, And that's what blew me away when I'm out walking my dogs, listening to Johan Hari talk, and he keeps saying, everything you believe about addiction is wrong. I got told this, here's what I found. I got told this, here's what I found. And he's making this incredible argument for connectivity in life. Um, How do you deal with something that I deal with, which is just you're outright dismissed because what you're an advocate for is so diametrically opposed to our modern way of our modern, I I call it industrial age for lack of a better term, our modern way of dealing with this problem. Because what you're describing to me relative to addiction is um, is this path of the way we deal with trauma in our lives, right? Which is isolation and then numbing. The numbing can take the form of um, alcohol, drugs, shopping, um, fitness, right? As in fitness addicts, uh, pornography, sex, I mean, all the different things that we use to numb ourselves, you know, fill in the blank. So how do you deal with being dismissed, right? Um, Because this is such a different approach to addiction. Yeah, my my response simply is um, I don't care what people view as the as as a particular way of doing things, I don't I don't I don't I don't care about the method. What I care about is necessarily a process that allows people to be human beings. And a lot of the current systems and structures that are in place strip out the humanity of people. Now, if you happen to be one of those humans that works in one of those systems, I feel bad for you. You're probably a really good person. You probably mean well. And most of the time, you're probably doing really good work. But the way that the system is structured is it strips out a lot of the humanity. So for most people, most people don't, I mean, even like myself, the only reason why I went to 30 days of treatment was simply because A, I was incarcerated and it it sort of looks good on the sheet you know, the court order to do it. Um, but I didn't learn anything from it. It, 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 did, it had no factor or impact on my life other than 
a counselor knew a guy named Tom who lived in Sioux Falls who ran a sober home. What is that? Connection. That was a connection to get me back to life. But the actual clinical therapy, there was zero value in any of that. I don't, 16 years later, I'm not going back and thinking, boy, I'm really super glad I had that, you know, 60 minute conversation with a therapist every single day for 30 days. I, I can't remember a single one of those conversations. But I do remember that there was a therapist who connected me to a guy in Sioux Falls. I know that it was Tom. Tom and I know each other really well, even to this very day. And that was a moment that was a, a linkage to reformulating uh, or rebuilding or establishing a new foundation for for a better life. The you know, trick is... I say the same thing when I talk about, you know, post-traumatic winning, the online seminar. It, You know, I, I produced six, one hour, one hour, a little bit more sometimes, uh, videos. So it's, it's, it's probably close to seven or more hours of content. And after I did it, and I don't know where the thought even came from, but it, I have it dawns on me that there's nothing in those seven hours that was given to me by a therapist. And I, I liked both my therapists. They're both Vietnam veterans, both infantry guys, Army infantry guys in Vietnam. So I related to them easily. And uh, one of them passed away while you know I was still going to them, which was a sad day. The chief thing that they allowed me to do was uh, a place to talk. Right. have a conversation, which I hadn't done. Of. But in terms of, like you, what came out of it, the the conversation that's most vivid in my mind uh, that I had with one was he asked me, why don't you find a really pretty woman that's not crazy? Yeah. And I responded, does such a thing exist? Because... <laughs> Does such a thing exist? I said, you know, it's a curious proposition that you pose to me, but I'm not sure it actually exists. And his response was, "Fuck you, we're not going to talk about it anymore." You're, 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 why I would go there with you? I said, no, seriously, it's an interesting thing. I'm not sure it exists. He looked, he said, well, "Look, we're done with it." That's the conversation that I remember. And so, I mean, it's interesting. And again, I don't think. Neither Dave nor I, we're not haters of, like you said, of these people that, that are out there doing all this work. But but what I would tell you relative to my work in the field of of trauma is that the vast majority of, of people do not get what they're looking for when they go looking for help. And I don't, so yeah. fill in the blank what that is, right? Uh, most, yeah, most, most of it is therapy. And, and then I meet them. And I just start saying things that are true, things that I know work, and I'm fucking nobody. I'm not a PhD. I don't have an advanced degree. But I've interviewed people for five and a half years. I've interviewed thousands of people, and I can tell you what's true, what works, and what turns them off. And so I can show you this path that I call post-traumatic winning. So it's interesting how, how I mean, David and I reconnected uh, probably seven, eight months ago in terms of this professional, other than having casual kind of contact in terms of, in a, in a substantive way, the parallel tracks of our lives are utterly amazing, very, very differently. And the conclusions that we both reach relative to approaches at work 
are incredibly congruent. You could look it up. Um, incredibly congruent while done in complete vacuums relative to each other. Never comparing yes. notes. You know, what's really interesting in listening to you is on the topic of therapy, we've, we've lost the meaning of the word help. So when you say a word over and over and over and over again, it no longer sounds like the word that you started to say and it no longer has any meaning. That's how I view the word help. We don't know what help really is. And so for me, when somebody says, I, th I think I want to go to treatment, I say, okay, um, is that really, do you think that's really going to help you? And, and the, the next question I ask is, who in your life have you had a, a, a deep, long conversation? And you talk about this in post-traumatic wedding. Who have you had a conversation with about all of your feelings and emotions and all of the stuff that have been bottling up to this very moment that you've just not been able to talk about? And nine times out of 10, it's, well, nobody. Great. Let's just do that first. Let's just have you just talk about it. Just say the shit. And that's what a therapist does. I think therapists are fantastic. But there is a point where that reaches a half-life. And it just no longer emits any sort of value. You've, you've said all this stuff. Great. Now it's out. Now what do I do? And that's you know, where I the think process if, if of you, help becomes. If, if, I think you've captured, in my opinion, what I encounter over and over and over again, which is, what, I, and I just said it. The mm -hmm. chief value to me was I actually went and I, and I articulated this for another human being, which I'd never done before because I was embarrassed, right? So my own vanity, if you will, um, held me back. Uh, I, I was proud of my family. I was proud of my life. I didn't really want to share, you know, with anybody the, the, the underbelly of my life. And so I go and talk about it. But then for me, like you just said, what do we do about it? How do we turn this to good? What are this? And that's something that I never got. I, 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 and I, I reflect it. I mean, I never was, and this is why I'm not afraid to tell somebody what, what the fuck to do, right? I was never told, like, do this, do this, do this. Here's an assignment. Bring this back with you next week. You know, I was never told that. And so I, I, I find it somewhat head-scratching that this is, and then what I find is that my experience is just about the experience of 90% of the people I encounter. Yeah. Right? People, people want to be told what to do, but at the same time, they don't want to be told what to do, right? It's, it's a weird conundrum. It's like, don't tell me what to do. I'll figure it out. But then, but then again, you get to a point and you say, like, I'm in this hole. Help me get out. Okay, well, I got to tell you what to do. You've got to take this first step or you got to do this first thing. In the, the world of therapy and in the world of that I have done a lot of work in, peer support, which is a emerging professional class, um, the, one of the number one rules is you just don't tell people what to do. Uh, you can give them options. You can lead them in a direction. So I'm, fuck, you, so I'm fucking this up? No. You're, no so what, what I was going to say is, again, because I'll, be I'll be the academic here in this conversation. Okay. Um, in the world of behavioral science and behavioral economics, um, 
what we've come to find out and learn is all human beings are irrational. We make irrational decisions all day long, right? Um, if you studied economics, which I think you did, right? Yes, I did. You, you learned that homo economicus is a rational man and, and that all day long, the, 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 uh, the rational homo economicus is making decisions that are, are designed and intentional on your best judgment and best self for your survival. But that's not how your day actually functions. That's not how you function. You make more shitty decisions and bad decisions than you make good decisions. So the question is, how do we design a world that gets around the constant irrationality of our behavior? Now, if you have addiction or anxiety or traumatic challenges or any other sort of malady, you've got irrationality on top of irrationality. So how do you combat that? You tell people what to do. Not to the extent that it completely eliminates their autonomy of choice, but you can say, kind of like a law school exam, there are four options for a right answer, but one of them is best. The other three options, you can choose those. They're legally sound. None of them are going to result in a malpractice lawsuit. But one of them is better than the others. But you know what? You can pick any one of the four. You're still going to be fine. And I think for what you do, Mac, and what you know, other folks are trying to do, and the way that I engage with people is, here are two or three paths. None of them are going to harm you. You're going to learn as you go down one of those roads, like Yogi Berra. Or you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> and, and, and once you get down a path and you start to, to learn the inputs that are coming at you, you can then sort of start to make more seasoned and informed choices um, to move on to the next best thing. And what comes in to that that betters the experience and improves your life is starting to build connections with people who've already walked down that path before. Because they can say, ah, I, I took that path too. It didn't go well for me. And here's the reason why it didn't go well for me. But if you go this direction or you try this thing, um, it, it, could, it could be different. You know what's mm -hmm. amazing is that I, I got a phone call from a guy last night. Um, in fact, he's in the post-traumatic winning presentation. He's a sergeant in the Marine Corps. His name's Parker. And I got a text that said, Dude, I'm saving somebody's life right now. To which I responded, don't fuck it up. And uh, so he calls me after um, he gets off the phone. And he was worried, right? He goes, he's drinking. And they were not co-located. But the, the guy reached out because he knew Parker had been through some shit in his life. Parker's father had committed suicide. And he, in the presentation, he talks about how pissed he was to go see the post-traumatic winning presentation but he's the first guy who ever walked up to me and said hey i want to thank you for that um i was really pissed when i had to go but 90 days after i saw it my dad committed suicide and i knew what to do because of that and so i've had that conversation now many times by people that have seen it didn't have shit in my life but i then i did and i know and it's always a wonderful conversation 
But he was worried. And I said, well, do you think he's going to kill himself? And he said, no. And I said, well, let me tell you what you've done. And I said, you've given him somebody to connect to who understands, right? And I said, and he probably has never had that in his life. And he says, dude, I don't think he has. And I said, so let me just tell you this. When he wakes up, he's going to think about it. He's going to think that I've got this guy who's a buddy of mine who's been through it. Who I, It felt really good to talk about my shit, and I did. And, man, it'd be, oh, I need to do that sober with him. And I said, that's what you just created. And, yep. so, and so know how powerful that is. And he was like, he was, and, then, and he was, his, as, as you know, when it happens, very excited about it. Very excited about it. So I want to talk about, we've been talking for an hour and 44 minutes. Okay. I want to talk <laughs> about, um, you, you've now refined what you do in, in terms of you now create, one of the things you do is you create tools to measure progress and outcomes, if, if, if yeah. I've articulated that appropriately. Talk to us about how did you get to what you're doing today and explain what you do now, you know, relative to, to evaluations and outcomes. Yeah, so the work that I was doing before working for an organization that uses peer coaching, so guys and gals like you and I that have experienced a thing, and so in our case it was addiction, um, you know, you can train peers to engage in that way and help people through that process. And it starts with, I understand I've been there. Right. And then you just go off to the races. Um, What happened was about three months in um, one of our funders was a large hospital system and they were really quite fascinated with the success stories. They loved that. And, you know, the, the president of the hospital system said, yeah, keep telling the stories. The anecdotes are fantastic. We love them. And you tell them wonderfully, but it's not, but it's not data. I hate that word anecdote. Yeah. It's, it's like, not, I got told not, once, ta- you know, when somebody said, Hey, let me introduce you to this, this Navy chaplain. She's like, I won't tell you her name, but she's very high up. Blah, blah. And I essentially got a pat on the head and I got told, you know, they really do need more than a pep talk. Yeah. Now, the only reason I didn't say go fuck yourself is because of them being a person of the cloth. Um, <laughs> right. Because when you know what you do and you've seen the power of what you do and then somebody pats you on the head who's a part of the industrial solution that only sees numbers go up and tells you to run along, buddy – Keep doing, you know, keep doing the good things you're doing. Good luck, you know. That's um, uh, pretty frustrating, pretty frustrating. And I will, I, I might add, I had data already associated, you know, with what I had done. And I still got yeah. the pat, I still got the pat on the head. So when you said the word anecdotes a few minutes ago, I'm not going to say it triggered me, but it, it, it might have. It triggered, it triggered you. No, anecdotes are wonderful when you're at cocktail parties, right? 
Um, but when you're when you're trying to uh, move a system, you, you need more than just stories. Uh, I think it comes down to three S's. To capture anybody's attention, you need uh, a good story. You need maybe a statistic or two. That's your data. And then maybe a little bit of science. Um, you know, what, what, why does this work? Uh, the data sort of adds the evidence. And then the story brings you the emotional human connection, the relationship to all of it. It's, it's, the, it's the glue uh, amongst everything. Now, for some audiences, uh, you can stand up in a room and you can just give them a, a, a knockdown, drag out, beautiful story, and they're sold. Uh, but for other audiences, you need data. And so in my case, we needed, uh, we were asked for data. And so I had mentioned this gentleman, Charlie, before. Uh, Charlie was in that meeting and I was sitting at my desk and Charlie, who's been around uh, a bit, um, lived by the mantra that if you hear something in a meeting and it's what you need to hear, the meeting is over. And uh, he literally got up and walked over to my desk and he says, David, you got 30 days. Figure out how to measure recovery. No one had done it before. There wasn't a, a recovery measure. It was just, Mac, how many days sober are you? Period. And that's it. That's the success metric. But you just talked, you mentioned the story earlier of the, the, the person who said they were three days sober. A valiant and courageous statement. But how many times is day four, day one again? And how many times does society and others look at that and go, you failed? So the days are not the metric. It's one metric, but it's not the metric. You know, as I shared in my story, um, but for a judge who looked at me like a human being and who could apply other resources to a problem, you and I aren't having this conversation at this level, right? I'm probably writing letters again to you in pencil. They might be dead. Or dead. Yeah, or worse. And so... What that led me down was the rabbit hole of um, human evaluation. So subjective evaluation. Okay, and, so let me take you back. So the three yeah. S's are a good story, some statistics, and what was the third one? Science. How much science? Just enough. Some, some science? Some science. <laughs> Just enough science. Just like enough that. science. All right. Right. Yeah, because when we're talking when we're talking about psychology and health and these sorts of things, um, there is some science in there. There's a reason why our brains work the way they do, and if you know a little bit of that and you can tell a little bit about why brains choose to do what they do, that's a sprinkling, just a sprinkle of science. To that end, um, Dave recommended a book that will become part of the prerequisites of post-traumatic winning. And it's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And um, the guy who, who writes it, um, the other one is called The Obstacle is the Way. Mm-hmm. And, um, but both these books, The Body Keeps the Score, and Dave is one of the people, I, I've had a number of people recommend that to me, and he recommends that to me. And, and He's a fascinating guy because he starts out in the 60s in this revolution in American medicine because of a drug called Prozac and also the MRI. And now we can reduce 
your chemical imbalance in your brain, right? And then we can treat it, except right. it, it doesn't work, right? In spite of all this, all this science, and 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 I think most of us. I'm 63. How old are you? 45. Holy shit. Anyway, um, um, <laughs> I think that you, we've all heard from different people that we know, you simply have a chemical imbalance. Yeah. And so what these very, very powerful drugs do is they modify the balance of your brain. And then right. what, what, what he takes you on this journey of, of him starting out in that, the optimism, right, that we can cure this stuff with pharmacology. And, it, and he kind of lays the foundation for this pharmacological approach to all maladies that there is a pill that will rescue this you from whatever ails you. And, he, and ultimately, it's fascinating because he comes full circle in this, this discussion. And, and so and, – and I haven't got to the conclusion yet, but you could see it coming that that there is not a single path, no. right? There is an approach, and that I, as I talk about post traumatic winning, the the fourth path that I call post traumatic winning is a wide path, where you are relative to medication, where you are relative to therapy, is very much a decision that you will make, a mature decision that you will make that will be unique to you. With, in conjunction with your medical doctor and if you have a mental health professional that you're involved with. And, 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 it's, and, and, and that's what it has to be. And so it's very interesting to hear this guy, you know, you know working, you know, at Harvard and, and, you know, in the Massachusetts, in the Boston area, you know, in kind of really the, the mecca of, you know, this exploration in the 60s and 70s and his kind of very, very interesting journey to a multi, um, what's right? What, what what am I looking for? An interdisciplinary approach to solving these things, and there is not a single path, which is what you're describing relative to addiction. Yes, and you know th- there there are other emerging um, science and conversations about especially depression around it not being a chemical imbalance but it, it being a um, a direct result of of increased inflammation in the body and in particular increased inflammation in the brain so inflammation in our in our, in our bodies is really a result of uh, just a few things our environment so where do we live? How does the weather affect us? Um, those sorts of things. And then um, noise pollution is another thing. But, but in, most in particular is food. You know, the, the stuff we put in our body um, deeply affects the inflammation within us. And so um, if you're familiar with uh, the idea of blue zones around the world, so I, I am not. What are blue zones? Blue zones are, are places on the planet where individuals have the least amount of heart disease, uh, diabetes, oh, I've, and I've, cancer. I've, I've read about them. Yeah, and and but they have and, and these are these are places where people live the longest, typically with um, uh, uh, average lifespans 
north of 90 years. So Okinawa is one particular place. Um, a few I've been, places I've been there, by the way. Stay longer, you'll live longer. <laughs> coffee the way they eat, coffee the way yeah. they live, and you will specifically live longer. So Dan Butner, who, who has been studying Blue Zones for many years, uh, his whole mission in life is to create Blue Zones in the United States. And it really is to get people to eat um, more beans and legumes, more greens, less uh, what is the, less What meat. is the opposite of a Blue Zone? Most of the United States of America. Grand Forks, North Dakota. <laughs> Grand Forks, <laughs> North Dakota on any given evening. Um, yeah. no, I'm not picking on Grand Forks, but if you're looking for an epicenter, right, alcohol, right, chicken wings, right. Um, Smoking, big <laughs> trucks. Yeah. Smoking. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, that, that's, that's killer. It kills us. And Literally. 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 And so you're talking yeah. about this link that starts in the food we ingest, right, yeah. that creates inflammation in our bodies that manifest themselves in all kinds of different maladies to include possibly depression? Yes. Because yeah. when you listen to Johan Hari, and, and, and the link is in this post, okay, um, that when you, so if you, if you, if you click on it, uh, instead of just listening, hitting the play button, if you actually read down, you'll see a series of links of things David and I have talked about. And uh, Johan Hari's video is one of them. And that video will lead you to others that he's done. But it's almost so I'm out walking the dogs at, and I go on this three mile loop and it's around the Orange County Fairgrounds. And I get on the far side and I'm like, this guy sounds really convincing. Okay. But it's so contrary. He's me. He's so contrary to conventional wisdom that I'm sure he's absolutely dismissed. Because he's talking about, I think at some point he mentioned diet, but he's talking about the whole, you know, all these things begin to go away when one thing's happen, when one thing happens, and that is when you begin to get connected. Right. Uh, so that's a name drop, but um, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> so in 2017, I gave. I was. I was invited to give a, a talk at a conference in uh, um, Michigan. And uh, I, my talk was at 11, and the talk after me was Johan Hari. And he was wow. giving the lunch keynote. Now, I had already read his book. You I know what? I have to it. tell you, that's big shit, man. If you're on the undercard and Johan, it's like being on the undercard when Elon Musk speaks. Sure. Right? Yeah. yeah. If you're in the building uh, with that guy. I will tell you what my joke was. And my joke was, I'm glad I'm going before Johan Hari. Otherwise, I wouldn't have an audience. Because oh. this was a bunch of addiction treatment people. And basically what I was saying was, y'all aren't going to really like what he has to say. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the good stuff first. And sure enough, I come walking off the stage and he looks at me and he goes, that was fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and... But it's right because there's a group of people that live in the status quo of the way that things have always done. And you bring this contrarian on stage and, and they don't want to hear it. And the reason why they don't want to hear it is because it is flying in the face of what they do every day. Okay. Right? I fight, and that's, I that's fight, rough for some people. I fight 
that's the fight I'm in the midst of. Is that yeah. and and it's an either and they look at it as an either or proposition that if I'm right, if McNamara is right, and again the data, right, and 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 you know the data behind what I do, the most recent data is Second Marine Air Wing has had horrible mental health statistics for ever because of the remote nature of the bases on the East Coast. They don't deploy too much, yada yada yada. They have yet to have a suicide in twenty. 2021, and I knocked. I just knocked on wood, um, so I don't want to jinx anything. Okay, so how does that happen? How do you go from worst to first in in this so difficult realm? Hmm. And yet, I've never ever received a single phone call or an inquiry, and I've been doing this for over two and a half years from anybody involved in mental health in the American military. Nobody's office has called me and said, you know, we're a little bit curious about what you're doing because we saw some data. It's attributed to you. And so there's this either or proposition. And I tell them, I don't look at it like that. I look at it as this defense in depth that there is a role to play every day of the pe- for the people that I interact with the most. And so what I tend to do is I teach this very, very kind of broad brush discussion of mental health, of the leadership component, the personal things that you can do, and the rules that you, if in, you know, thousands of discussions, you know, with people that I've interviewed, the rules that if you follow, I can tell you that your life can go to a great place. But they don't want to hear it because there's this institutional mentality. If I'm right, they're wrong. There are hundreds, literally hundreds of billions of, to- of dollars devoted to these these programs across the United States. I mean, God only knows what they are inside the Department of Defense. You know, where, where, I, where I started teaching this, or at least nested it initially. Um, and yet, to me, there's this almost this lack of willingness to explore something that works. Yeah. I mean, and that seems to me what what you just described as you come off the stage, Hari tells you how funny you are. The sad part is that it's the truth. That's right. Um, you know, my you asked me, so what, what do I do now? My whole goal in life is to work with organizations or people to put systems and methods in place that allow individuals to use data, their own personal data um, uh, of subjective measurements of their own observations around them and within them to process from a stage of where they are today to a stage of surviving and thriving so that they can no longer be tied to a perpetual system of, of care or need, right? That they, Maslow, uh, in his hierarchy of needs, has it, he, he calls that self-actualization. How do we bring people to self-actualization? So they can more, no longer be tied to a... A system of care or need. Because to what you're saying, Mike, is 
How many people do you know that have come to you and they've said, but what you've told me in the last hour is contrary to what I get from my therapist. And I've been going to that person for four years. Why aren't I well yet? And your response is, because their job isn't to get you well. <laughs> That's not their job. If it was, that person would be better, sadly. And so, so sadly, people get stuck in this perpetual loop of engaging in therapy and in treatment and you know other things. Um, because that's, you know, we're trying to normalize therapy when what we should actually be normalizing is what I call a default of wellness. And, and that involves teaching people from very early on how to engage in their emotions. It involves constructing and designing communities and cities in ways that promote physical exercise. So can you walk to the store? <laughs> can, can, can you actually get on a bike and go to the grocery store? Um, can you walk to school? How many, how many kids now drive their cars or, or you know, are, are forced to, to take buses? Um, I'm going to sound like an old man now, but when I was, you know, a kid, you know, I could walk 10 minutes to get to school uphill both ways in a blizzard because it was North Dakota. And that is um, maybe not uphill, but, but yeah, but, uh, but I, but I walked, blizzard, right. Uh, and, uh, but that's not how we do things now. Just think about Grand Forks and just think about other places that, you know, um, where are the schools in Grand Forks? They're on the outskirts of town. There's no homes. You've got to drive there. That's, that's asinine. It's counter to the human body wanting and needing to move. We have built in this sickness of not moving. And all of these things contribute to, to a stacking on of, of illness, of not being physically and mentally well. And it's taking a toll. It's hitting us right now in the face. Well, think about that. And, think about that. I mean, if you look at rates of um, obesity in the country, right, I get up. I eat whatever I eat before I go to school, most of it not healthy. Um, I get in a car, go to school, and then I sit down for the rest of the day, uh, except when I'm at gym class. And if I don't play any kind of sport, I then get in a car and I go home, I get on my phone, and I play video games. And I, I mean, you can, the if anything, what we promoted is we promoted a culture that lends itself to obesity. I mean, and 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 I mean, and one of the problems with our culture. I mean, if 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 you're anybody who tries to lose weight um, or stay fit, and everywhere you go, there's great food. And when they bring it to the table, they don't bring a little bit of it, right? They bring a ton of it, and it, so it's it's everything is lined up for you to be sedentary and you know and overconsume right and then when you're when you go to confront that what we're really good at is helping you numb yourself what we're That's really right. not good at is helping you become a healthy person both physically and mentally 
And then when you see efforts like Dave, and again, this is what's so funny. So Dave and I, I call him and I and we talk, and I said, hey, man, I want you to hop in this seminar I, I do. And he starts telling me about what he's doing. I mean, and it's like, it's like the, it's like this parallel track of, of what I do, and it's it's like this most astounding journey, right? To then wind up like on a congruent path with somebody, and your work has taken you in such different directions, and uh, and it, and it's it's amazing. It's been amazing. So, first of all, I have to tell you that. I'm now thinking about either hiring a, a cellist, or, or having a somehow or other a a track of cello music in the background when I do my shit because I have to tell you that I'm, I I like it. You're blissed out, aren't you? I, I, <laughs> you are naturally blissed out. Well, look, you know it, it, it's really interesting that you say that. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have married somebody who um, you know is one of the best at performing on that, that instrument. Um, but there is, there's something to, I think my life is much more fulfilling because I happen to have that in my life. Right. I have this music that I could just, I could just sit here if I wanted to, and I could just listen to my wife practice and how incredible is that? Now it's something that not everybody has access to. Well, you know, um, but, but it is, what's interesting about it is when I have conversations with people, at some point, I normally ask them, where does the joy in your life come from, right? And the number of times that they'll sit and they'll look and then they look at me and they'll say, I don't know. I would tell you that is the response 90% of the time. I don't know. And I'm talking about people that are married, people that are uh, have kids, right? When you ask them where does the joy in your life come from, they'll tell you. They don't. They don't. They don't say, "Well, let me tell you, Mac. My wife, you know, is is a world class cellist, and sometime I'll just close my eyes while I work, and I'll stop and I'll listen to her, and it's mo- this moment of serenity made better because this woman I love, who who means so much to me in my life, is producing this, and so. I it's this moment of joy in my life, this moment of bliss. And so I'm thinking I need to like fall in love with a cellist or something like that. Yeah, um, maybe she's got some friends. Yeah, uh, maybe, yeah. yeah. Ask her if she knows any, any Orange County cellist. Um But it but again it it it, it is um those moments of joy, this path to get to a place where you can experience joy, which is very much what I articulate in post-traumatic winning. It is a, and again, what I say, right from trauma to joy, right. And that's where, and that's where the path goes. The, um, and so, and, so, and, and to, to your point though, uh, just to quickly inter- interject, um, that's, that's at the heart of what I do every day. And that was at the heart of trying to create some sort of tool um, to to establish a process for people to understand that about themselves, right? There's uh, unless you walk into a room and they've got somebody like you that says, you know, you're not really going to transcend unless you find things of joy in your life, because um, that's not how therapists or others speak. That's not how we speak in society. 
Well, how do we do that? Well, I can put 68 questions together in a row that are, that are on, the, on the surface look pretty mundane. But when you start to dig into them and you start to think about them, they begin to paint a picture of a life that you can go, wait a minute, this is out of tune. This is out of tune. What if I just tweak this here? What if I spend a little bit more time thinking about my values? What if I spend a little bit more time thinking about why I don't have a significant other? What, do I, what about my job? Yeah, I'm not respected at my job. I don't really like that. It doesn't bring me anything that's fulfilling. Okay, what do I do to change that? A lot of people don't, don't even ask themselves those questions. They wake up, they've got a job, it pays the bills, and they just hit repeat. It's Groundhog Day. And, and too many people live in that hamster wheel. And for, 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 for others, we come along and go, I'm tired of the hamster wheel. It's killing me. I want to actually live life. That's, that's hard, right? It's hard because, you know, when you all of a sudden look around and you say, you know, in response to where does the joy in your life come from? Well, one of the first answers is I can tell you where it doesn't come from. And that is the nine hours a day I spend at work, right? That's, that's a job, right? I have three kids, a wife. I mean, it pays the bills. I'm so deep into that, right? I can't without destabilizing my family and not, without putting my family at risk, you know, what do I do? Right. And so, and I, and I think that's an interesting question because I moved my family to North Dakota. I just had a friend, grew up in Napa, California, graduate of the United States Naval Academy, retired from the Marine Corps, and was uh, working in Southern California and, you know, lived near me in San Clemente. And he moved his family to Wisconsin. And I said, you fucking copycat. He goes, I <laughs> knew you were going to say that. Um, you should hear, right, you should hear him talk about, uh, first of all, very funny, right? Um, right, understanding why God did invent Carhartt. Um, the significance of a remote car starter and a seat heater. Um, all those things, right? Um learning how to pull people out of the ditch in the snow, all these right. things that become staples of your life, but becoming part of a community where people know who you are, where you walk in the high school gym and they point at you and they say, hey, right, the McNamara's are here. Or, yeah. hey, they point to your kid and say, oh, you're Mike McNamara's kid. Like, what, 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 what? And what that means to a young person who's been essentially anonymous and faceless in a community. And... And so most people won't do that, though, okay? I, and I think that my own opinion, when I, people ask me, I say do it. Follow your passion in life. Be ready to work a little bit harder and be ready to correct some mistakes that you'll make because that's what I've done. I, I've rarely held jobs that I wasn't passionate about, and I did those for short periods of time till I could get myself to something that I was, and I always have. And I think it's one of the reasons why I will die a happy person. Now, if you're so locked into a job that you can't, you just can't do it, right? Right. And you might be self-employed and you built this thing and it, it is what it is. 
my question to you, and I'm curious about this, and then we'll, we'll end this thing. What do you say to that person? Because what I say to him is, okay, look, I don't know if you become a volunteer. I don't know if you become a coach. I don't know if you become a cellist. I don't know what you have to create in your life to create joy on a consistent basis that will make the nine hours a day that you spend as as they're essentially they're they're essential in your life. But you can find other ways to create joy in your life. I'm curious about what you tell somebody that would be that would not have you know the what they would tell you I don't have the dexterity professionally to do what you're doing. What about me? What do you tell them? Well, there's 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 two parts of it. There's the short game and there's the long game. And the long game is um, if you're asking the question, uh, what what do you think you you want to get to? What 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 is the thing that that will bring you the joy if it's a profession or or something else? And that that might require a lot of steps to get there. And so the first thing you do is you just plot that out. But then the second thing I would say is, and I'll take this to my own personal experience. Um, when I went back to college, I'm 30 years old. Uh, I am financing the entire endeavor through student loans and part-time jobs. And as somebody who is now off of alcohol and having to deal with my depression and anxiety without those, that safety net for, a long, for, for the first time in a long time, um, I had to find things that would bring me meaning in the moment. Well, I also needed a job, and the job I got was working at Subway. And here I am, a 30-year-old, going back to college. I'm trying to make new relationships in my life. And it's 12 noon, and the lunch rush is coming in, and here come these professors and these other students who I'm trying to impress. And I'm making their sandwich, and I get really depressed about that. I'm like, this is just, I, I feel so low. What are they going to think about me? And then somebody said to me, you know, have you given it any consideration that maybe you're the one that's keeping them alive today? And I said, what? <laughs> I'm making them a sandwich. Exactly. And they go, they go, no, you're not. You're feeding them. You're allowing them to get something nutritious in their body so they can go finish the rest of the day to be the best professor, the best student the best whatever it is that they want to be to achieve the next big goal like you want to achieve. But for now, right now, in this moment, this hour, you are bringing nutritious food in the best possible package. I'm a sandwich artist for them at that moment. Completely reframing the fact that I'm hanging out with two 16 and 17 year olds who are just, you know, screw ups like I was, like I but, was. I can, I, but I can show them through an example of leadership and whatever um, that, you know what, you can get meaning and joy in serving others in this little scenario of making sandwiches, but that it's not going to last forever. This is, this is a step. This is a moment to the next big moment. That's, that's what I say to people. And so if it if it's, you know, doing something like that, you know, if your business fails, but you got to go get a job and drive a bus for the high school or something um, and, and you feel like you've you've failed and that's a failure, flip it around. 
you're now the transporter of the next generation of of smart people in this country who are going to solve the problems that you couldn't. Okay, so so I so the short game is probably mental and coaching, right? Right. Absolutely. Right. So somebody's going to help you reframe that. And I think that's what I that's what I essentially do. Talk to me about the long game. The long game is of these structural things in my life. What do you, what do you say about the long game? Because you, you did you did divide it up into short and long game. Yeah, the long game is you actually have to sit down and you've got to do an inventory, and you've got to sort of pro and con it, you know, um, and good and bad all of your life. You know what what have I tried that didn't work? What did I try that I don't like? Um, if, if 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 I could have anything right now um, that I could do, it could be maybe a business. It could go work for another company. Um, whatever. What is that? And then unpack that and go, okay, what do I need to do? Which might take you to Wisconsin, which might take you to Wisconsin, which might take you. It it might mean waiting for somebody to say something to you like, Hey, why are you wasting your life? Going to go back into radio. Maybe you should become a lawyer right now that that clicks a long game. It's like, wait a minute, I've got three years of college to get a degree, then I got to get into law school. That's another three years of school plus another year of trying to overcome character and fitness. That, that, hey, Sandy, that's seven years just to become a lawyer. And she goes, yeah. And here are the steps that you're going to have to take to make that happen. Do you want to make that happen? Yes, I do. So the answer to your part of your question is one of the key ingredients is you have to have a mentor. You have to have somebody else who can see outward with you in that vision. And then you have to start to build the structures in place that will allow you to take those steps to, to get there. And then you have to constantly evaluate that. So you have to come up with some other system. So, um, you know, what is the goal structure? What is my review process? And how do I recalibrate based upon the results? And you can use any number of tools. Um, you could create smart goals. Uh, you know, smart breaks down into. Okay, hold on. I want to end here. I want to end here, and then I want you to come back, and then I want I want to talk specifically about evaluation. Okay? okay. The last question I'll ask you. I'll ask you two questions as we end. Um, what? We've spent two hours and 22 minutes together. What about this interview isn't complete if I don't ask you this or if you don't say this in, as we've talked about your life journey to where you're at today, Dave, um, your, your, your work in, in, in the field of addiction, and we'll expound on your work on, on that here when you come back. But what about this? leaves this interview, this discussion incomplete? It might be the simple question that somebody might be asking right now, and that is, well, if your life was so terrible and there was so much alcohol and drugs in your life, how did you stay sober? Right? I mean, I think that's a valid question. I think it's a fair question. You didn't really ask it. Uh, But there are probably a lot of people asking that for themselves. How do I actually do that? 
Um, and we have phrases like one day at a time and all that stuff. And that's fine. Um, time I, time I, heals all wounds. A lie. Right. Throw I mean, all it, that yeah, stuff in it's the all this, all this, all this brass plated nonsense, which I don't know, serves you well, even though some of it's based in truth, certainly. Well, one day at a time is based in a lot of truth because what we really have to do is we have to break our life up into meaningful, digestible elements. If it's too big, it's it's just and and, and you're trying to overcome something big, it's too hard. So, um, yeah, that's one of the things. And I would tell you that there were three things that that were key to it. One having somebody in my life who is willing to tell me uh, when I was absolutely and fundamentally wrong. So um, that became two people, uh, well, three people. I had a sponsor, um, the judge, who I'd send letters to every three months, and then Professor McEwen, Sandy McEwen. Each of those people, um, and then a mentor, all of those folks would just, flatly say to me that is a bad bad decision try something else um the second one is uh constant and rigorous uh daily evaluation who am i and asking the questions who am i what am i doing and where do i want to go seems very sort of like really crappy vision posters on the wall right but if you're not asking those questions, who are you? What do you want to do? And where do you want to go? Um, you're, you're never going to get anywhere. And then the last part was simply rebuilding connections to things that um, I found happiness or joy in. So for me, it was uh, reading, golf, and having really deep esoteric conversations with anybody willing to have a deep esoteric conversation about anything. <laughs> and that's, that's the stuff that fills me up. And I've had two of those conversations today, uh, this morning with a client. Um, we just shut the clock off and talked deeply about, um, you know, our lives. And here we're having this deep conversation about um, uh, how to bring joy and, and, and move the needle on people's lives. And so, I'm good for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to do that. We have to do the evaluation piece. Um, there was one other question that I thought that I should ask you, but it must not be significant because um, so your your journey from alcohol addicted human being to lawyer addiction what do you have a title do you have like when somebody says well what do you do for a living dave what do you say <laughs> it depends on who i'm talking to uh i i say that i i i run a behavioral science and technology company got it behavioral science and technology company um leader um sure. so that journey right and the fact that you didn't slip back into ever right 
you never slip slip back into it um, is is a pretty. I mean, I'm sure you you pinch yourself all the time. Like, are you kidding me? Like, um, how the hell did this even happen? Um, I, I'm sure, but I mean, for you, every painful step of the way was painful, hard work. And and I would even tell you, in fact, this thought kind of went through my head when you said it. One day at a time. Mm-hmm. It's almost like one minute at a time. Some right? days it is right because. Um, how many decisions do you make in a day that keep you from going back in the direction that, that you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, right? As you process your day, as thoughts come into your head, you know. And so, um, you know, it's almost one minute at a time. I'm, I'm going to fight this beast. And, uh, and, and, you know, again, the whole journey of a thousand you know, step starts with a single step and yeah, but, but you know, what's wrong with that? That framing is it frames it back onto the thing that was the struggle in my life. And what I like to say is, um, let's look at the people that didn't have that particular adversity who still had to go through life with some challenges and still have to meet life on life's terms every minute of every day um, the glide path might be a little bit easier, right? But why does the one day at a time or the one minute at a time have to have greater impact or value uh, for, for, for somebody like us or me who's you know, had a particular adversity in life when in reality what that should be taught, that should be taught from day one. We need to, we need to build that into a learning cycle of every one of us. Now imagine that, if all that, of that is a, that that is simply the way that you're going to cope, and you're going to have to do it multiple times on a daily basis. Now you That's know. Right. Let me tell you. I mean, um, I I absolutely agree with that. And and you know, my fondest hope is that what I do at some point in a, in a different version will get to a high school. We'll get. I know it will get to university, and um, and. Um, it will it will show its metal there this relatable thing that you have to do on a daily basis that folds into your life and and yeah. I, and i agree and i agree i to our detriment we view this as abnormal atypical if you get rather, rather than you know what i say which is nobody gets to the car wash without getting wet Right. Nobody gets through the car wash without. In fact, a, a good friend of mine is, uh, you know, is going through some medical stuff and I and uh, in the hospital and it's serious. And I texted his son. I said, hey, man, how you doing? He said, oh, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard right now. And, you know, hopefully next week and blah, blah, blah. And I said, OK, just so you know, you've got to talk about this. This will not be the last time you ever go through difficult times in your life. And you've got to learn how to do this because there's a way that you do this so that you come out of it um, better, that you come out of it closer with, to the people you love, right? And so it's important that you learn. Anytime you need to talk, you call me, right? And if I find out you're struggling and you don't call me, I'm going to raise fucking hell and I know how to find you. And, and you know, then it would got to be kind of fun discussion and, you know, ending with, hey, I'm serious about that, though. You know that. Like, I know, Mac. Thank you very much. And so, but it, it's a taught, learned behavior, 
that you and I have both uh, have gone through a lot of shit to learn these lessons. And so um, in winding this down, how do, how do how do you how do people find you? the work you do um, and uh, they'll be able to find these links that Dave talks to us about, but how do they find you if they want to have a conversation with you? Well, you just Google my name. Um, my my personal website is davidwhitesock.com. My company website is commonlywell.com. David commonly White well. Sock, spell White Sock. W H I T E. S-O-C-K. DavidWhitesock.com. All one word. All one word. Got it. And and, then, and so from, from there, you can link out to everything else that I, that I do. Um, and I just want to say one other thing uh, that could kick off and tee up our next conversation. And that is, it hasn't all been roses. Um, I measure my my recovery capital every 30 days. And I've, me- I've measured it all through 2020 and COVID. And it's on a score of zero to 100. And I went from an average score of like 78 down to a 54. And I can show you this graph. I can show you this chart. And from one month, it just bottoms out. Now, when I show that to people in the addiction treatment industry, and I say, if I just show you this graph and you see this, this giant drop, what do you think happened to this person? Every single one of them say to me, well, that person relapsed. And, and I point to them and I say, well, no, I did not. Um, this, was, this is my data. But, <laughs> but in April of 2020, I moved from Denver, Colorado to northern New York. My job I was transitioning out of that I had for eight years I was about to start my own company. Life was hell. And why did that only last a month? Well, it's because I was able to pick up the phone and talk to certain people and they could talk me through this. But that didn't ward off the fact that I didn't have four or five days of just dark soul searching of depression. I did. And, and, but when you look at the next seven months and you actually see it in data, what you see is resilience. I can give you data on resilience. What does that look like? And and so to, to the you know it, it's not all sunshine and roses and and, and dogs jumping in fields. Um, there's some shit in there, but that's but you're talking life. about a learned um, a learned skill, right? Yes. That you have you have learned you've internalized that you measure that gets you when life begins to shove you in back into the valley of the shadow of death, you recognize it. I mean, you hell, you quantify it in your, in your monthly evaluation, you see it. And then you begin to, um, one of the things that I was, in fact, before we were coming on, I was talking to Dave and I actually showed him, uh, the slide that I'm making, um, and it's a slide about the daily infrastructure in your life. And so, um, and this slide I've reconfigured based on a conversation that I've had with, um, I've had with people here on this, uh, in, in post-traumatic winning. 
and 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 what I talked about was, and I'll show it because um, I did a little bit uh, while we were talking, and in the lower right hand quadrant is what's new in the slide, and the slide contains waking up sober with money in the bank. So those those stressors are are out of your life. Understanding how do you deal with anger and anxiety, which is you know I have this breathing thing that I do. A meditation in some way, shape, or form that I've learned how to do and, and adopt adapt to myself because I'm not a 15-minute meditator. I can't do that. Um, physical fitness, which I know is half for my brain and half for my body. Talking about it, which is so fundamental right, to it, but something I never did. And then something a woman said. She lives in Georgia. And uh, we we're talking about having a plan that gets you when you knowing that this progress in life is not going to be linear, that it's going to be it's going to have its own ups and downs, and you're going to get knocked off the path, and that you have to have really should have a plan of how do you what do I do to get myself back on the plan, back on the path, and so I have this picture of a highway that goes. It looks like it could be in New Mexico or maybe in the foothill of the Rockies, but it's some green, long and flat, and mountains on the horizon. A woman walking along railroad tracks. And again, um, twelve. this list that says 12 ways to get back on track when things don't work out. And what that all connotes to me is the expectation that you will fail, that you will stumble, that you will stumble, that you will get off track. And that built into the plan is the concept of a flawed human being. Not that you're going to shine this penny up and it's never going to get tarnished again. Oh, no. You're going to be shining, and you're going to be tarnishing, and you're going to be shining, and you're going to be in some, you know, state of dynamic movement of that. But that that, and what I tell people, but I'm going to tell you with certainty, there is a path you can walk from trauma to joy, and I would think what they would tell you is from addiction to joy in life, right? And maybe that should all be blended in some way, shape, or form. That that path is um, real. It is wide, and it accommodates the choices that you'll have to make in your life. But it's not bullshit, and it even accounts for you as a flawed human being. And when you say that, as, you, as Dave talked about the importance of a mentor, you know, finding this, out, this stuff out on your own, I don't know anybody who's done that. My path to it was thousands of interviews and conversations with people that have gone through this, me seeing the pattern in it, Right. Beginning to articulate that and then having these conversations um, with people about this pattern, refining the pattern and then having it turn into something I never expected it to be. But the beauty of the pattern is that it is absolutely founded in truth. I would tell you irrefutable truth um, that it's human and that it works. So those things make it, in my opinion, Awesome. Um, any final thoughts before I say goodbye to you? No, that was a great way to end. <laughs> well, no, no, I mean, it is. It, what's, what's so crazy about this, it is our very, very independent, yeah. very parallel journey to the same place. I, I've, I've been utterly fascinated since you called me and I was going to go do groceries and ended up sitting in the parking lot for like two hours um, uh, you know, seven or eight months ago and, and just sort of just sitting back and saying, 
um, what is this that I'm listening to? Um, how is it that he is arriving to these conclusions when what I kind of thought that you were really only doing was just talking to, you know, a bunch of folks in the military about, you know, military stuff. And um, now all of a sudden, it seems like your your mission is to reverse engineer uh, the human experience for a lot of people who have um, had just a, a, a terrible walk through life. And um, just amazed by it. And I, I, I'm just grateful for the fact that um, you know, that 20 year path of, of knowing each other and realizing that all along we'd kind of somewhat be doing the same thing is, is pretty, pretty remarkable. So last night, um, I'm, uh, I'm hanging out after the Yankees lose to the Red Sox. So Colleen and I are essentially doing, we're doing nothing. Okay. And um, I don't watch any episodic TV. I'm not a Netflix guy. Um, I'm none of that. What I do watch is I I like to watch music concert videos. I like to watch, you know, music. And so I'm – are you a Justin Bieber fan? Uh, no. Okay. So this is Justin Bieber. He's got a song called Intentions. And it's and he films a video in a uh, in kind of a halfway house for women and children in Los Angeles. And I love the video. I'll send you the link. Okay. Yeah, please. You're about to become a Justin Bieber fan. Um, we'll see about that. Exactly. And which I never thought I would be. Uh, the name of the song is is Intentions, and at the end of it, um, he talks. They, these people say, "My intention is." So I'm laying on the couch, and the and my kids hate me for this. I mean, in in a, in a loving way, I can listen to the same song a hundred and eighty seven thousand times in a row, and it drives them crazy. And so I'm binge watching this video called Intentions. At the end of it, um, they start saying, my intention is. Now, I'm laying on my couch, and I'm pissed about the Yankees, okay? And I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, my intention is to stop this suicide thing. Now, come on. That's the song. It's right. But I'm laying on the couch. Um, and that's what my thought in my head is, right? My intention is to rid this country, right? Maybe more than this country of this scourge of suicide that happens um, when hopelessness, right, meets hopelessness, meets another layer of hopelessness, meets another layer of hopelessness. Um, yeah, Justin Bieber. 
job. You're no, you're I'll, a I'll no, you're a music guy. Come yeah, on. I'll pass. I'll pass. No judgment. Uh, <laughs> whatever anybody finds that is the catalyst towards something good, uh, it is what it is. <laughs> the um. Even no, but you. Know, but uh, again, this this journey. That uh, what's so crazy about this this whole discussion is, um, how different, how parallel, coming to literally the same conclusions about whether it be addiction, whether it be about trauma, you know, living a great life after trauma, that the path is pretty, pretty similar, that the process is almost identical. And, you know, Dave and I are going to, we have work to do. I mean, what I want him to do is, is, is help design a, uh, an evaluation tool, right? I, I have this warrior wellness octagon that is, you know, very, I would tell you very crude and, and, and simple, which is one of the things I love about post-traumatic winning. It's not complex, but you know, where this business is going is an app, you know, that people can download and use to, to live this in their daily life, an app that will be part coach. And, and part of that certainly is the, a monthly evaluation that then steers you into other content, um, that, that, you know, will be provided through the app, you know, that will hopefully take you um, and she- help shepherd you and mentor you from trauma to joy, right? Maybe it might be from addiction to joy. And, uh, and so, so no, it's, it's, I think for me and, and, and hopefully Dave, I mean, very exciting stuff. And so, so thank you for devoting the last two and a half or so hours to this. Um, and, and we were, we spoke for about 45 minutes before we even got on the phone with this. So, um, no, I could do this and, and the conversations are awesome. I, but I have to tell you, uh, how proud I am of you. You know, um, this is a long way from the pencil written letter, um, that I got in Fallujah in 2006. And, um, I think I echo a lot of people in your life, um, that look at you today and say, you know, man, I cannot believe, you know, what you've done, you know, with a, uh, with the situation that, that you got yourself into. Um, but the same person who got themselves into that situation, you know, lives a life today. That's pretty amazing. So I could tell you how proud I am of you. Congratulations. Certainly. Um, to you and, uh, and your wife and her cello and all of that. And thank you very much for doing this. Of course. Well, thank you for those kind of words. And, uh, it goes, uh, with saying that, uh, but for folks like you who, um, responded and maintained connection, um, the rest of it's not possible. So, uh, grateful to you and for what you're doing. This is just, um, this is this is the work of life, and this is what we should all be doing. And so, uh, proud to just be uh, watching you too, uh, sort of extend this off in your own unique way. Now, let me tell you, I've always lived, and my kids will tell you this: that um, if you're trying, I'm helping. Just don't piss right. down my back and tell me it's raining. And so, if you're trying, right? If you're trying, right? My job is to help, and I will. I will. So, and and like I said, I wish – I don't know that I have that letter anymore. Uh, I can't imagine that I threw it out, but I, I don't know where it is. And, and, and well, But the, I, I the, the courage, you do. I do. Will you scan it and send it to me? 
I'd like to read it. I'll go take a look. Yeah, I know where it's at. All right, but um, no, but the courage it takes. So to anybody who's listening to this that is in that place, I mean, you can do it, right? And and if somebody you know is in that place, they can they can do it. There's there's no doubt in my mind. I know there's no doubt in Dave's mind. They can do it. It's hard, you know. It's hard, but you know you you need a mentor, and and there's hard work to be done. But I, I will tell you this: my experience is this: once you show people a path, and they they and they hear somebody, and that's telling them the truth. To me, watch what happens next. And you begin to to give them, right? You begin to give them the tools that it takes to go there. Watch what happens. And there are no bullshit tools, and they work. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, and if, if I could just add one last bit to that, I think there's two things that have fundamentally helped change my life, and that is the first is... Um, Eliminate this desire for instant gratification. Things don't come immediately that are good. And the second part is identify a process and trust it and stick with it. Those two pieces, um, in, in, in addition to what you just said, are, are fundamental. The courage comes out of that. Once you, once you can really understand, okay, I don't need instant gratification. I don't need for this to be right today. And... I'm going to do a certain things over and over and over again in a process. It will result in the thing. It will actually result in a shit ton of luck is what ends up happening. Um, that will, that will all of that builds up your ability to tap into courage. I think. Well, I mean, I, I said this once during the, during, um, while we record this thing, um, three days sober, Somebody's had the courage to say that. While we're recording this, right, I'm going to talk to that person, right? And so I sent him a text early this morning, and the text I got back said, six days sober. There is a path for me. And, and I mean, again, it's that fight. It's process. Right? It's yeah. that fight. It's that courage. It's that human struggle that, I mean, I don't care if, if it's a friend of mine named Dave or somebody I don't know very well. I mean, I don't know how you don't stick your hand out, and and what you get back from that is 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 transformational in life. And I know that's what I feed off. I know that's what Dave feeds off. And so, on that note, thank you very much. Thank you. That'll do it, my friend, David Whitesock. He's Dave to me. Um. No, what an incredible uh, little walk through life, huh? Yep. And my thanks to him for coming on and sharing that with uh, everybody here. And uh, his story is a powerful one of what it is to be a flawed human being and, uh, and overcome those flaws and then turn around and help other people. So uh, just an awesome story and an example of uh, what it is to be a post-traumatic winner and he is certainly that so on that note that'll do it if I can help you help somebody all that contact information at posttraumaticwinning.com or at allmarineradio.com 
finds its way to me. So please don't be afraid to reach out. So on behalf of my guests today, Dave White Sock and uh, myself, thank you very much for listening. Have a great day. And this song very much is a tribute to living the good life, right? The high life. And uh, and though you may be struggling, you could do it. I promise you. <laughs>